Kat. And I'm Kurt, and you're listening to Kat and Kurt's TV Review. Welcome to episode 240, Who Has Been Stealing the Faces of the Dead? This week, we're discussing the Doctor Who 2017 Christmas special, Twice Upon a Time, and season 7, episode 21 of Buffy, End of Days. As always, we suggest you watch the episodes before you listen to the podcast. Also, if you haven't done so already, you may want to listen to our first podcast to get an idea of our methodology. All right, here we are. Uh, twice upon a time. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, once isn't enough for the doctor. Uh, no. So, well, I guess before we get into, you know, discussing the episode, you had some production notes. Um, perhaps quite a few production notes. I do. I'm going to try to zip through them quickly. Um, but yeah, this is a bit of an end of an era, clearly, and a season ending. So we have to kind of wrap it up. Um, I wanted to kind of mention that both the Hugo and Saturn Awards for this year are still pending, but Twice Upon a Time is nominated for them. Um, so we'll see if it uh, gets any sort of love from them um, up against things such as Channel Zero, uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000, Twin Peaks, Black Mirror, uh, The Good Place, Star Trek Discovery. So that's sort of the competition. Um, I wasn't quite sure where to put this in, but I feel like this is a good spot to mention these new uh, Target novels that are coming out. So I think I've mentioned that during the hiatus of Doctor Who, like during the 90s, there were, they kind of continued this story in a range of spinoff books, like, you know, featuring the the seventh and then the eighth Doctors. Um, so those were like new adventures. Um, and that's where like a lot of the new series writers like, you know, Russell Davies and um, Mark Gatiss and Gareth Roberts kind of got their start as writers. Um and so, but even before that, during the classic series, there was a range of books called the Target novels, which kind of started in the 60s and went through the entire classic series, novelizing like the televised stories. Mm. So like, you know, um, whoever, you know, like Terrence Dix, who was a writer for the show, like wrote a million novelizations for both his own and other people's episodes. So kind of back in the days when um, things did not exactly get reruns or you didn't have VHS tapes or DVDs or indeed episodes were like lost in the the void. um, Mm -hmm. This was like the only way that you had like a actual record of like what happened in these episodes. Hmm. Um, Now they weren't always necessarily hundred percent faithful because like any adaptation, they like changed things and added scenes and all that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, But that was like an early version of, if you were a completist, you might have had all of the novels in transmission order on your shelves, and people have that to this day. Um, sure. So they kind of, obviously, they ran out of classic episodes, and sort of that line kind of, you know, went out of print and everything. Um, but they are, seems to be maybe putting their toe in the water of reviving that um, with a few new series episodes. So, um I bring it up now because one of them is Twice Upon a Time, um, 
novelized by Paul Cornell, um, who wrote Father's Day and Human Nature. And, um, sure. Um, and wrote for like those spinoff novels as well. Um, but also Stephen Moffat has um, adapted The Day of the Doctor and Russell T. Davies has adapted Rose. Um, and then a, another writer, Jenny Colgan, is doing um, The Christmas Invasion. So these are the sort of the four one featuring each of the new series doctors. They sort of picked a big episode for each of them and have put those out. So those are just coming out like within the last couple months. Mm. Um, so anyway, I am very excited to read them once I, they, they come out in, in physical print form in the U S next month. So um, you'll, you'll have, um, you'll have to let me know. I, I'll be honest. I'm not a huge fan of those types of novelizations. Um, yeah, I, no, I don't and read a, I don't read a ton of them, but like yeah. I've read some of like the Star Wars novelizations and stuff and I'm just they're just not typically that great. Um even I when don't they're I know that I've yeah, sorry, finish. I was just going to say even when they're done by like um well-known writers and stuff. Like um Alan Dean Foster like, you know, has done some of the Star Wars novelizations and they're just kind of terrible. <laughs> and yeah. so like you know, that's, uh, it is what it is. But it, it, it's funny that you mentioned that because I actually, I was in a um, bookstore um, somewhat recently, maybe like three, four weeks ago, um, that I hadn't been to here, uh, somewhat near where I live, like 10, 15 minutes away, not that far away. Um, and had seen some of these. I think they were, they must have been the old, like novelization mm -hmm. ones because they they were they were numbered, mm -hmm. and I briefly I mean it, it, they only had maybe like half dozen of them, um, mm -hmm. and they weren't like sequential. So they had like maybe number like thirty something, and then like number right. like seventy something, and then like right. a hundred and something. So like it, they definitely weren't like like if there had been like a run of like a decent number, then I might have considered right. looking at Grabbed them a, more than a bunch of you know, them, for yeah. twenty yeah. seconds, but. Um, I'd be interested to see, like, because I almost wonder, like, I wonder how it'll change to, you mm -hmm. know, a novelization now versus, and, and like you said, these are kind of big episodes. There probably is quite a bit that you can add to them in a novel story. Whereas the, the ones that I saw were like, these real thin, like, paperback volumes. Like, right. probably, like, maybe they did add some scenes and stuff, but, like, probably not a ton of right. addition to it. Like, just enough to give it a little color, maybe, and, and you know, literally, since some of them probably were from black and white episodes. Right. But and, like, like, smooth over transitions. Yeah, and, like, a few yeah, things like yeah. that. But, I like, I can't imagine they were much longer than the actual right. scripts. Um right. So yeah, I'd just be curious to know like how how good yeah. they are compared to um, yeah you know compared to the episodes, but then also like how they differ whether good or not um, you know mm -hmm. from from kind of those older ones. And I, I don't know if you have any of the older ones either, but and I don't I don't um, I I've also I don't see them a lot, but I know I have seen them in some bookstores and everything. Um, I mean, I haven't really looked for them. But, That's um, the first time I remember, yeah, like actually like noting that they were there. I mean, it's possible yeah. that like 
they are in other bookstores that I'm in and they're just like maybe off in some different section with like, cause you know how like they have like the star Wars and star Trek and like, you know, right. the series, like those like, like franchise series yeah. books and everything. Yeah. Like might yeah. be off in a different spot. And I, I don't think I've noticed them before, but like it's possible mm-hmm. that I just, cause it wasn't like somewhere that I was looking. Yeah. Yeah. No. And, and I'm not a big reader of novelizations either. I, in fact, I can't, think of whether I've even ever read a novelization of something um but like of like a movie or like yeah like that's not a thing that I'm generally that interested in but um I don't know just because these episodes are so interesting these writers are so interesting they're adapting their own stories so in some ways I think that makes them a little less sort of precious about what they've done and you know and in like the case of like Rose it's like well, he wrote it like, what, like 15 years ago or something. And so I think he's kind of going to bring um, the kind of weight of all the stuff that's come since and try to kind of like play around with how do you incorporate like the subsequent 10 seasons of the new series back into Rose. Um, or like they were talking about sure. with Moffat. I don't quite know. They were a little bit coy about exactly how this like what exactly this means I don't I don't think you'd understand it until you read the book but um apparently with the day of the doctor Moffat does some typically clever Moffat-y stuff with like the point of view um where it he somehow he plays around with is this first person third person who's telling the story from what perspective or so like they're adding some novelistic techniques that make it a little different I think than just let's sort of write out the script and then add in like, you know, narrator right. sort of prose in between. Um, so they sound like kind of interesting experiments. And I guess it's sort of the first attempt to kind of see, is this something people are interested in? You know, if, if these are successful, potentially they might, there might be a call to do more of them. Um, but anyway, so yeah, so you can go uh, soon. You'll be able to go buy Twice Upon a Time from your local bookseller, um, apparently. So, um, okay. In the kind of classic series vein, um, we mentioned last time the inclusion of the first Doctor and the stuff from the Tenth Planet, which was, you know, the Cybermen, the first Cybermen story and the first Doctor's you know, regeneration episode. Um, And apparently um, Moffat refers to a line which was cut from the original script of the 10th planet about the doctor refusing to undergo the regeneration process, or there was some allusion to this. So I guess that was sort of his inspiration to like, oh, maybe, you know, maybe always all the way back in that beginning, he had some resistance to it, even though that didn't make like the final cut of the episode. Um, and, um, okay. And I also wanted to mention, uh, we'll get to the captain, but, um, this, uh, implication, um, we've had a few nods to the brigadier in the, in the new series, even though he has, he's never appeared because the actor sort of passed away a few years ago. Um, we get another reference here to Colonel Lethbridge Stewart, who 
you sort of assume that it's the brigadier's father, I think, when you watch it. Um, but apparently um, the Hazeman estate, who owned the rights to the brigadier because he was first written in the episode, uh, the web, what was it? The Web of Fear by Mervyn Hazeman. So his like literary estate owns the character of, you know, the brigadier. And they even have like a whole line of like, their own novels that they've just like sort of commissioned and written about like him. And I guess they've established like what his family is. And um, so they came out like right away and said, it's not the brigadier's father, it's his uncle. Like they were like <laughs> worried that like there would be this like contradiction in the continuity. So there's some, I guess, debate or confusion about exactly who Colonel Lethbridge, you know, or this uh, Captain Lethbridge Stewart is, mm -hmm. um, what his relationship, but you kind of, okay, he's related to him somehow, you know, he's in the sort of extended family. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. Um, okay, so in terms of actors, we get um, Mark Gatiss, obviously, and his final gift from Stephen Moffat playing uh, the captain. Um, <laughs> you gotta send Gatiss off, right? Um, and then, so we also get like, you know, obviously Pro Mackey and Matt Lucas come back. Um, you were asking about Jenna Coleman before we started recording. Um, hers was the cameo that was not announced ahead of time. Um, and as you can tell, wasn't even really shot at the same time as everything else because she's sort of this disembodied floating figure um who was busy doing victoria so she had and, to sort of do it separately you know i think they shot her stuff after they had finished with everything else um and there's also that kind of like not quite on cue like reaction you know like in in her speech and stuff that you can always tell when it's like a green screened yeah. character right. in the scene or right. whatever Right, she and Capaldi are looking at tennis balls rather than right. like other actors. Yeah, um, so yeah, that sounds like it was one of the last things that they shot, but they were able to kind of squeak her in for like you know a couple hours, um, and then um, the most surprising casting note is the German soldier who uh, the captain is in his, the standoff with is uh, played by Toby Whithouse. So um, it's sort of like. Kapal or uh, Moffat's last chance to give all the writers like cameos that they might have always wanted. Um, okay, so then finally, 13th Doctor stuff. So um, I always think it's interesting to look at how they announce these things and kind of remember back to when, you know, Eccleston and Tennant just like literally got press releases, like just like an article in a newspaper is sort of the announcement. Um, and then Matt Smith got this like, you know, BBC special where it's like a documentary and then we're going to announce who the new doctor is. And then Capaldi got this like global simulcast to like millions <laughs> of people like live on TV around the world. Um, so, um, they switch over to like this promotional video format where in July of last year, they just, uh, put a, a video up on YouTube. Um, there might've been a little bit of warning, but not really much. Like you knew there was gonna be some big announcement. Um, and then they like showed it on TV and just like stuck it on YouTube. And it's, you know, the the video of her, 
you know, walking through the forest and you can kind of tell that the clothes are too big. So you're sort of, you kind of are clued into the fact that it might be a woman before you actually see her. Um, and actually, so that little TV spot was, um, nominated, um, for a BAFTA TV award, um, for must see TV moment, which was just last night. The BAFTA awards were last night. Oh, um, really? It didn't, it didn't win, but, um, it lost to blue planet. Um, but, uh, it was nominated. So there's that. Um, and then as with the end of time, they, uh, you know, there's the passing of the torch where uh, Moffat handed over the unfinished script to Chris Chibnall to write the final scene with the 13th Doctor, okay. you know, to do whatever, you know, as before. So you have the new guy dictating where do we leave it and, off for. And yeah. I thought that had been the case um, with, with, you know, Davies and Moffat, but yeah. I wasn't entirely sure so like yes. i couldn't entirely remember yeah. so like um yeah yeah so like you kind of send over like you know the doctor says his final words he glows you know and and turns into fire and then uh you just say here you go chris chibnall like do whatever you want with that mm -hmm. um which is sort of a similar scene to matt smith but like a bit more dire <laughs> like yeah you know right right because if you think about like like he he crashes as well right, right? like yeah yeah uh, but this is yeah like here's like the doctor's actually falling out of right her tardis right. and right you know, and and it's and you can see the tardis sort of disappearing like it's not, going off somewhere else not that we want to get into the whole regeneration stuff now necessarily but like no um yeah no but from I, the from the behind the scenes point of view you're getting that handover to the next right. regime um, Sorry, that went on way too long. So I apologize. <laughs> you know, it happens. Um, we're coming into the end of the seasons, and I feel like we've had a few of our episodes that have gone short. So, you know, we can maybe make up for a few minutes here and there. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, no, I mean, all that's definitely interesting. And I think, I mean, and this is... I think we talked a little bit about like how I sort of knew, you know, Capaldi was being an like I was aware at that point. Like previous doctors and stuff like were before my time. Like we were already like mm -hmm. catching up and stuff. Maybe, maybe had I I hadn't start we hadn't started with Matt Smith right. So like it was really Capaldi where, mm -hmm. like maybe I was sort of aware, you know, because we were already doing our podcast. And that he was coming. That he right, was coming. Right. Uh, but like, yeah. I wasn't, I was actively avoiding stuff. But like by this time with Jodie Whittaker, um, one, I had seen Broadchurch. So like, I <laughs> actually knew who she was. <laughs> and like, also um, was just more generally aware because I was caught up and like, yeah. you know, or close to caught up, I guess, at the time. And like, remember seeing like, the hullabaloo on you know twitter and the video like i saw the video when it came out and mm -hmm. all of that so um definitely a, a a different experience as far as like sort of being being involved and aware i mean involved in that like i liked a tweet or something but like you know sure. um 
yeah. you know, like being sort of around and aware of like that um, announcement and like what was kind of going on there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also feeling like now the pain of the weight in between. I know, right. <laughs> because that's not something that I had to really do until now. Yeah, um, right. I mean, even for this last season, this season 10, like the wait, like that was the first time I actually had to wait for like new episodes to come. And Mm -hmm. so um, now waiting for like an actual new doctor is like Mm -hmm. a different experience as well. Cause it's like, you do kind of have that, like, I just want to like, see like, what's, how's it going to be? How's it going to change? Right. And you're getting the announcement over a year before you're ever going to see apart from this one generation scene, you know, from July of 2017 to it sounds like it's going to be October, 2018. Like that's a long, that's a long time to wait, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Um, That's what they're saying is fall. Um, Probably October. Yeah. So, so yeah. uh, yeah, it's a different, it's a different experience. Um, so where did you want to start with yeah. the actual episode that we have here? So given some of the little, like, I mean, not the first time in Doctor Who, but kind of the, the time jumps a bit around, um, I thought it might, rather than starting kind of where we leave off, um, well, and, and I mean, the episode doesn't really actually start where we left off, right? It starts, you know, what is it? The seven and, 709 episodes ago or whatever. <laughs> um, like, instead of starting kind of there with... Previously. The, yeah. Um, <laughs> Previously, 54 years ago or whatever. I, I do want to talk about that. 50 years ago. In terms of, yeah. like, the first Doctor and kind of how we're reintroduced to him. Although it's really kind of my introduction to him, I guess. Um mm-hmm. You know, I do want to talk about that, but, like, before we get there, like, maybe talking more about, like, I I feel like the actual, like, even though it's not, like, maybe technically literary frame of, like, it starts and, like, ends the story or anything, the mm-hmm. Captain Lethbridge-Stewart uh, stuff is, like, did I say that right? Um we can just call him the captain. The captain. Yes, the captain. you did say it. you did say it right. The captain. Uh, so, Captain Archibald Hamish Lethbridge Stewart. <laughs> have, having um, so uh, I, I, as you know, I'm um, a fan of How I Met Your Mother, um, mm-hmm. and in that there's uh, there's a character called the captain, <laughs> who's played by. Um, Oh gosh, what's his name? The Twin Peaks guy, uh, Kyle McLaughlin. Oh, okay. Uh, and so whenever I, whenever you say the captain, like no, it doesn't matter what show we're talking about. That's who I picture. Anyway, um, so it's just a very like for me to just like refer to him as the captain. It's just a bizarre sort of thing. Anyway. Confusing. Um. Uh. Anyway, so but the captain. Yes, I want to start with him because I do feel like, even though even though you could argue that like the first Doctor story is kind of the frame here. Like, I feel like more like, at least from an episodic point of view, um, Mm -hmm. maybe less so from a mythological point of view, but at least from the episode point of view, like the captain's 
story is sort of the frame story. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's the one who sort of like pulled out. And so I also, I mean, there's a very, um, is it, uh, what is it, all quiet on the Western front kind of feel mm-hmm. to it? Like mm-hmm. of, you know, the enemies and like the one guy sort of like wounded and dying and like, you know, but they're in the pit together and they can't like move and they're both kind of afraid of each other. So I just a very like mm-hmm. intense kind of, you know, war uh, scene there. Um, yeah. And what's interesting then is, so, and, and I want to roll that into kind of like the captain and the testimony kind of stuff all together and just talk through like, Mm-hmm. what they are and like why they pull him out and that kind of stuff um i know you you would mention like just even bringing up the world war one setting in and of itself before we kind of move into like what happens to the captain like did you mm-hmm. have some thoughts there that you wanted to share about kind of the world war one setting and um so just like a few things and you can respond or add to it or whatever and then we can kind of yeah get into like testimony stuff but um uh, I saw someone point out, I can't remember if this was on Twitter or on one of the blogs that I read or whatever, but um, somebody pointing out uh, for, uh, just as like a setting of like, you know, like if you're Stephen Moffat thinking, where am I going to set, you know, the final episode for this doctor? Um, apart from like space, you know, if we want to give it like a historical setting, um, kind of choosing a battlefield is interesting for this doctor as sort of, uh, you know, his sort of anti-soldier stance, which he's mellowed clearly and softened in, in his tenure, but as kind of the one who was sort of extremely vocally resistant to that idea, um, you know, kind of finishing up with this scene of kind of, peace and forgiveness on a battlefield is sort of interesting. Um, And even when we were watching, uh, now having seen this episode, rewatching The Doctor Falls was interesting to me when it gets to the end after he's sort of blown up the place and it all kind of looks like a World War I Mm. battlefield. Like, you know, with the scraggly sort of trees with no leaves and like shell holes and all that sort of thing. Just like watching these two episodes so closely together, I feel like kind of makes that a lot stronger. Um, And then the other thing I kind of wanted to point out, which makes the sort of Tolkien fan in me happy um, is like the, I, you think, you know, you bring up world war one and I start thinking about Tolkien. I can't help it. Sure. Um, And the this idea, which I think is gaining more and more traction and like research in like you know books and articles being written about World War One as a significant point in the development of fantasy as a genre, um, and like kind of what was it about the bleakness of that experience, especially in Europe. Um, you know, and, and in Britain, maybe specifically, um, with that seemed to kind of spurn this little publishing boom of all of these writers, you know, turning out these sort of 
fantasy works and audiences being, you know, like them finding readers. Um, mm -hmm. You know, so there's some relationship between like the hopelessness of the situation and then a kind of, you know, spurning of the imagination to start creating these fantasy worlds. Um, so I kind of like that we kind of slip this in to the first Doctor's timeline and it becomes kind of an origin story in a way. Like, it's not the first origin story. Like, it's this is at the end of the first Doctor's tenure. It's not the first adventure he's going on. But it's still sort of early days. And I like the idea that, like, we're linking World War One with, like, the beginning of the story. Hmm. Like, from a kind of history of fantasy point of view, that pleases me. <laughs> like, you know, like, I don't, there's something kind of exciting about that idea, which I, I highly doubt that anybody involved in the show deliberately sort of put that in. But um, it's one of those things that made me kind of happy when I saw it after having written my thesis, thinking like, oh, this episode kind of feels like it was sort of tailored to my interests and everything. Um, sure. So yeah, like, and so it just makes me think of uh, Tom Shippey, the Tolkien scholar, like the stuff that he's written about what he calls traumatized authors. And that sort of like this idea of so many of the great fantasy and science fiction authors in the 20s, like in the early 20th century or the first half had experiences of warfare, you know, or were touched by trauma in some fashion, either in the world wars or, you know, he even includes Ursula Le Guin in there for other personal reasons and that kind of thing. Mm. Um, so there's something about like, rather than kind of, I think the cliche is that, the war would bring you to this sort of grim realism of the way things really are. Um, but like, strangely, it actually kind of spurned this development of fantasy and science fiction as like a popular genre. So um, anyway, yeah. I just like the fact that we're, we're linking that into the doctor's story. That's definitely interesting. And so it just occurred to me too, at just kind of, we were looking at, um, kind of our posting schedule versus our recording schedule, which any anyone who listens to us knows that like there's maybe a few weeks lag uh between when we record and, and when we post these. And and as you're bringing up, you know, Tolkien and uh the Great War, um it it of course reminds me that this episode should be posting the week that we're at Mythmoot. Um which is John which yeah. is uh, one of the special guests there will be John Garth who wrote who who literally wrote the book on Tolkien and the Great War um, and and so definitely can you know has a lot of light to shed sort of along the lines of what you were just saying mm -hmm. um, yeah and I think there's I mean that's sort of the big one um, but then I, I haven't read this book yet but I've been meaning to um, uh, Janet Brennan Croft who's another uh, Tolkien scholar has a edited volume on uh, what's it called? Baptism of, of fire, um, like world war one and the birth of modern fantasy. So kind of starting with Tolkien and the inklings, but then expanding it out to other sort of early 20th century fantasists. Um, so it seems like something that's 
like there's a lot more still to be done, but it's, you know, that's an area of inquiry that's gaining a lot of attention lately. Maybe as we're kind of getting into and through the kind of hundred year anniversary of World War One, there's a little bit more interest in the legacy of that period and everything. So. Yeah. And I, I mean, I'm sure we could go on talking a long time about, you know, fantasy and why, you know, the escapism, you know, is maybe appropriate for a time that is war torn, I guess, getting back to sort of talking through the, well, and actually one last thing I'll, I'll mention too, that like, um, it's, it's sort of, I, I guess maybe it's not the opposite, but maybe like the corollary to that is that I, I believe, um, it was in her dystopian fiction class that Amy Sturgis talks about um, sort of that idea that like the opposite is kind of true in that you have this sort of rise in dystopian literature when like things are going well and people are prosperous and like, you know, maybe can handle the darker stories a little, mm. a little better um, and that kind of thing. Um, you know, well, I, I don't, obviously with things like that, there is always a matter of, of shades rather than, you know, right. it, it's not a black and white kind of thing, but um, just kind of interesting that there is, I think definitely a psychological component to maybe some of the types of stories that we get um, and kind of the uh, cycle, I guess, of like the sort mm -hmm. of genres that kind of go back and forth and, and, um, Right, and the kind of pendulum effect of yeah. of the the cultural mood sort of dialing up or down yeah. based on circumstances or even just the passage of time, you know, like yeah. a certain amount of time goes by and you're just ready for something different. Mm -hmm. So um Sure. Um yeah. all of that said. And that that's good. I don't know that I have anything to add to that. Um I hadn't it's not surprising that you would draw the Tolkien connection maybe before I do. Um, well, but. and having, having spent like a year and a half writing about Doctor Who and fairy tales, I'm sort of very, <laughs> very tuned in. Like when, when Stephen Moffat decides to name his final episode twice upon a time, I kind of like, you know, my ears prick up and uh, yeah. I, I become hyper vigilant. <laughs> so this aired after your thesis was done though right like so you didn't yeah did you did, have you got like gone back and like i haven't gone back to, and like, like reincorporated it or anything oh, no okay. no it's like in the eventual book version you know there needs to be like a chapter on like <laughs> the 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 world war one aspect of like this episode yeah basically well and and so and we'll other, throw human nature in there too the other thing I mean, the interesting thing too about it being World War One is because like, we've gotten like World War Two stuff before with like yeah. the left balloons and you know the you know different yeah. like you know the yeah. bombing of London, but it was always like the war encroaching on England. Mm -hmm. Whereas this is more, sure. you know, like on the Western Front kind yeah, of. This yeah, this is this is you know going across to the continent and yeah, and kind of being away from home and kind of that alien feel to it and the surrealistic field. And, and I like your drawing of the conclude of the parallel to, um, 
the doctor falls because I mean, that very much is like, it, it just spread across, you know, homesteads and fields and, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the different agricultural fields and stuff that like where people were, you know, should have otherwise been growing food and like living their lives mm-hmm. and like all of these things. And so definitely like, obviously like the war torn landscape with the, you know, uh, with the wire and the, you know, bear, you know, the barriers and trenches and like all that stuff. Like it doesn't look like a field where you would grow things, but that's kind of what it should be. And so in a sense, it is kind of like not, not the setting isn't the same exactly, but it's sort of thematically the next, Mm. the next step from, you know, the, the, like it's almost as if the doctor just went up like another level and it's like more or mm. more torn, you know, uh, yeah. area of the yeah. ship. Yeah. No. And that's true. That kind of makes the, uh, the spaceship, the, the Mondasian spaceship sort of a metaphor for his struggle, doesn't it? Like you're kind of racing against time, but you're never going to catch up because time's always ahead of you. And each level you go up, it's just, going to get destroyed yeah. and you go to the next level and you kind of stay there as long as you can before you have to go to the next level. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's war all the way up. Right. right. Yeah. Anyway. Um, so yeah, so I wanted to start with the captain. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, so like you get this, he's in this, you know, it's not like a trench, it's like a, a bomb crater or something, right? Like with, uh, yeah, uh, like a shell hole kind of. Yeah. And um, you know, with this enemy soldier, German soldier, and you know, sort of like I mean, we don't I don't I don't want to give his sort of little monologue cuz like um, you know, whatever, but um you sort of get him like talking to the soldier and then suddenly like everything stops and there's this like glass, you know, crystal whatever creature um that kind of appears and it turns out to be, I mean, we don't find out till later, but like turns out to be this thing. That's part of a project called the testimony, um, mm-hmm. which uh, like, I don't think we need to do like the slow reveal. Like we get in the episode, like mm-hmm. we can just jump ahead and see like, yeah. Um, they are these uh, computer driven sort of artificial intelligence creatures that go about through time uh the description uh the self-description from them is we are what awaits at the end of every life as every living soul dies so we appear uh we take from you what we need and return you to the moment of your death we are testimony um they were like sort of created in the distant future and we find i don't i didn't write down even the name of like who it is but it's like they're created in sort of this like um it's sort of like the human memory version of the wayback machine like um Mm -hmm. from the internet archive if you ever if you've ever used that um Mm -hmm. you know to look at like old stuff on the internet and Mm -hmm. and this is like you know, the memory archive, um, mm-hmm. kind of of the human race and, and presumably others as well. Like, I mean, they have Nardal in there who's not human and, um, right. you know, can presumably are going about, 
Um, they say as every living soul dies, and, and as we know, there are more things than just humans that have souls of some kind or other. Um, and not like depending even on what your definition of soul actually is. Um, sure. And so, um, yeah, they kind of go about, you know, recording and, um, you know, finding out what, you know, these human lives are about, which is interesting because like when you extrapolate that, they say every living soul. So, I mean, are they doing this like one by one and kind of going through? Or are there like a bunch of these happening sort of simultaneously? Because mm-hmm. when you think about it, it's like, well, the German guy who's like dying across the hole mm-hmm. from him is probably mm-hmm. having a similar experience. Right. Right, about, right. right. Presumably at the same time. Like he's closer to his death, it seems, than even um, the captain is. Mm-hmm. And so. Um, you know, like, it, it's sort of a, like, there's a, not, not camaraderie, but like a, a, you know, sort of like a, you know, we're, we're all in this together, you know, like, we're, right. we all die in the end, like, we're, right. you know, dead is dead, regardless of which side you're on, um, right. ultimately. Right, and that should breed compassion for yeah, exactly. your fellow man, yeah, um, yeah. Oh, and actually the um, the line about, oh, I wish that you spoke English and that I spoke German kind of reminds me of this, the similar, you know, stuff in, um, what was that episode we just watched? I can't think of the name with the Picts, where when they suddenly find when the Picts and the Romans can understand each other. Oh, right. Um, you know, again, not that language is the solution to all violence in human history, because clearly that, you know... There are a lot deep, there are many reasons why people fight and kill each other. Sure. But there is still the sense that the language barrier or the communication barrier, the lack of being able to understand one another needlessly breeds a lot of fear and a lot of conflict. And this idea that maybe these two soldiers mutually agree that we don't want to kill each other and we don't want to die but neither of us can really be sure of what the other one is saying. So we can't know for sure if it's okay to lower my own gun. Yeah. Um, well, whereas if we could just agree on something, we would both agree that neither of us thinks this is a good idea. Yeah. Um, and now it's my turn to bring in the Tolkien reference. Cause it, it's very much that um, scene uh, where is it, I don't remember who thinks it. Is it Frodo or Sam who sees the, de- you know, Haradrim? Oh, Sam. Is it Sam? That's mm-hmm. what I thought, but I couldn't remember off the top of my head. Um, who sees the dead, you know, Southron and, you know, like wonders like, you know, what what lies or threats might he have been told? Or, you know, mm-hmm. did he think he was going off to like win glory and, you know, is just as heroic and noble as, you know, any of us are? but just you know it's coming at it from a different point of view and maybe you know doesn't recognize you know the evil kind of behind you know the things that are going on because they don't see it as evil they see it as something different and you know like kind of right or right or he's been lied to or threatened or whatever it was that led him here um and you know i mean like it's hard to like 
you know, then turn to a sort of World War One story where, like, you have, you know, an Englishman on one side. And, of course, I mean, so we're, you know, we're the, we're, we're the allies. And so, like, we, you know, think, or I actually... Was it Axis and Allies at that point? I can't remember. Is that World War One or Two? I think it was. Uh, no, but whatever. What, what, yeah. Whatever you know, we were on. You whatever know, the, the, we're on the good the, side. The quote, whatever good it is. side. Yeah, yeah. and 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 a, we're clearly the heroes in this scenario. It, yeah, it, it, it's hard to you know look at the other you know side, and and so I you know brought up all Klein on the Western Front. Obviously, that's told from the German point of view, um, and just thinking through like. Yeah, like, what is it like for, you know, someone who's told that, like, you're going off to defend the homeland and, you know, this is your glory and, like, that's, you believe what you're told because why wouldn't you? You know, that's mm -hmm. the perspective you're given. And so there's definitely a, a aspect of that, I feel like, in all of this, too. Um, so, yeah, so the testimony... Um, you know, they're from the distant future. They go back in time, find people at the exact point of death and then harvest something. Like there's this sort of nebulous, like we take, we take from you what we need and then like return. And it's like, well, what is that? Like, that's kind of ominous. Um, mm -hmm. I don't, I don't think we actually get like a real clear answer. Like the closest we get is, when they finally make it to Rusty's cave or, you know, tower or whatever it is, um, mm -hmm. which are like two completely opposite things. It's either a cave or a tower. But it's like, <laughs> not one of the, I mean, it's more of a tower, I guess. Right. Like he's. Yeah, right it is. Like, I think he's up in a tower. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause he has a good vantage point to I, be I, shooting all the little squishy dogs. I was just thinking around. like how dark and like, yeah, you know, whatever yeah. it is in there, but yeah, it is a tower. Um, you know, they, they get sort of the the recording of, you know, the Testimony Foundation combines the resources of time travel with the latest in memory extraction. I won't read the whole thing, but, like, they're going back and getting these, you know, testimony of the past and um, letting people walk among them. But, like, again, that's like, well, what is that? How is that what they need? Like, well, like we never get an answer to that question of, like, what is it that you actually need? Is it, is it, do they just need it because that's how they're programmed? Like, or is there like, in which case the doctor says, Oh, you know, it's not an evil plan. I really, I don't really know what to do when it's not an evil plan, but like, they are kind like the way they describe themselves is kind of parasitic. Like I was going to, I was just feeling like, it might not be an evil plan, but it's not entirely clear that it's a good plan yeah. either. Like, like even, yeah, even I, if the intention even, of the yeah. makers of like, I, I again, I didn't write down the guy's name who like created it, but like, even if their intention was like, oh, you know, hey, this is like, you know, NPR story core, you know, to the max, like where people like can all like record their individual stories and we have it on file yeah. forever, you know in the galactic Smithsonian or whatever it is. And like, even if that's like the intent, like it seems like at this point, it's like, like maybe the AI has grown and evolved a little bit to like being a little more. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, like you said, like it's not exactly evil, but it, it's not exactly benign either. Like, especially when you consider like, 
they're extracting people at the moment just before death. Mm. But like, then there's that whole like interference thing of like mm. the, the, is that the Heisenberg principle of like, you know, if you're like observing something, then like mm. you're affecting how it actually, you know, happens. Right. Um, so does that become a problem to where like, by getting their story and their testimony does that then like mark them for death rather than mm. like it just right. happens that they were gonna die now and we're just taking them moment before they die um right especially given that we know in this universe we can change time and have parallel universes and sort of splintered as things change and all that sort of th and, so yeah who's to say that the moment of their death is is finally their moment of death right. really and and more to the point with the captain it's not his death so like right. sometimes they get it wrong apparently right. or at least right. in this one case they got right. it wrong um right. or the other one um the other one i think of is clara like what the heck is the last moment before her death is it in face the raven when like a split second before the raven kills her or is it like after all her like you know, the spin-off adventure she has in the kind of nanosecond of time that she where she's paused, you know, like which I don't even totally understand. So how the heck are they gonna go and figure out like what the last moment is for her? I've um I've succeeded in in transferring my skepticism of the science of Doctor Who to you. Um <laughs> Oh, it's uh, I've never had a problem saying the science doesn't make sense. <laughs> that was yeah, never my position. It's just that you're not as bothered by it. <laughs> I'm just not bothered by it. Um, no, but yeah. But I feel like if if we can barely explain it, how that I think that just yeah, putting that together with all these other examples we have, how then do they determine what the moment of what the final moment before death is? Um, right and i mean is is unclear they're creatures from the future so like presumably they have like data of like this is you know the exact moment that this person dies um although like again like that's not always like easy to determine even like when you're in the future like we we have mysterious deaths where like people don't know like like even mm -hmm. like you know, someone who's murdered, like the coroner gives them like, eh, maybe there's like a two hour window of like when they were, you know, killed or whatever. Like, mm -hmm. so it's not always easy to discern those exact moments. Maybe they have better technology and, and can do that. And I think that's yeah. just sort of what we're led to believe. Um, right. But even, even though like, once the doctor kind of finds out that like, does find out that like he was right, Bill was... A duplicate she was part of mm -hmm. this testimony the whole time even when he kind of accepts that like she's not a trap you know she really does believe herself to be bill and has bill's memories and and he kind of treats her somewhat normally i feel like even in the end there's still a distance and i feel like that's part of the ambiguity of testimony of like he kind of thanks bill and nardole for who they were to him, but it's kind of like, he knows he's not really talking to them. Like they're gone They're They've moved on. And this is some sort of AI with their memories. Mm -hmm. And even in the end, 
he kind of says like, you're not even really here. You're just memories held in glass. And we know the importance of memory because we've been talking about that for 10 seasons. (laughs) And maybe you, maybe it's one of those weird like paradoxes of like Bill says, you are made up of your memories, but does that necessarily mean that your memories are you Mm. like maybe a glass jar filled with your memories doesn't necessarily have whatever your soul is attached to it. Um, even if your memories are what make you who you are. Um, well, and that's, and, and, and that's some of that, even in the end, he, he, maybe they're not evil, but he's not quite fully comfortable with them either. Um, and again, they don't act. I mean, the implication is that they take the memories, um, or they may even say that, right? Like they can record, uh, their memories duplicated um, and their physical cells returned to the moment of dissolution without pain, distress, or any recall of the process. Um, now the dead can speak again. Um, they don't say they take the souls, right? Mm. They say, as every living soul dies. So the soul is still dying. They're just right. recording these memories in these vessels. And I think Right, and the soul is returned to the body to experience its moment of passing, I think, like, is sort of the implication. Yeah, and and so your your point about, um, you know, whether we're, like, we are our memories, but, like, maybe we're not only our memories, like, that there's something more to that. And I would say one of the things there is the ability to have and experience new things and make new memories and it's Mm -hmm. not it's not clear that bill can do that now she goes on like bill the bill the testimony bill testimony bill that's what we'll call it um yeah testimony bill does go onto the ship and like you know can record i guess like or or at least like is showing, you know, like we see like the little like glass figure watching the screen with like through Bill's eyes and that kind of thing. So there's that aspect of, you know, Bill's able to like record or at least transmit things back to be recorded, you know, on the ship. But like, is anything that she's going through now actually creating like new memories? Or is, like, mm. the most that can happen is that, like, she can remember and maybe react based on those memories to, like, what the doctor is saying. But, like, it's mm. not clear, like, like if if the AI is creating new memories, then it's something other than Bill. Because Bill never had mm. those experiences. Bill's dead. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so, or, like, the other question is, like, is Bill actually dead? Because if she was saved by Heather, mm-hmm. which Bill, which this Bill remembers that happening, but doesn't remember the next step, does that imply that Bill's actually dead? Or did they get it wrong again? And Bill's living, but it just a different existence now than mm-hmm. what she is and still has a soul of some kind that's like completely off. So all that to say, like, I would say that it's not clear that like, this AI can actually like 
mm-hmm. have new memories and new experiences. It can maybe act in the moment, you know, based on the experiences and memories of the person that it sort of contains. But like, yeah, any new experiences and stuff aren't necessarily experiences of that person. They're experiences of like the testimony as like its own entity. Mm-hmm. Um, which I don't like. I don't. I don't know where to go with that beyond there, other than just to say that like that seems to me to be a different thing than like Bill living on. It's just yeah. Bill's memory is sort of react. It's like, you know, the pictures at Hogwarts, like, you know, like right. they can, right. they can like react and respond and, you know, like learn passwords and things like that. But they're not like, they're not the people like themselves. They're pictures still of the people, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I think that's a really good comparison. Yeah. Um, so we've talked for an hour and haven't even gotten to the doctors. Let's talk about the doctors. <laughs> Let's talk about the doctors. Um, once upon a time, twice upon a time, uh, previously on Doctor Who. Yeah. 709 episodes ago. I want to start there because. <laughs> okay. It's a really weird opening. Um, oh, I loved it. I loved it. I didn't say I, dis- so. I didn't say I disliked it. But yeah, I wasn't assuming. But, but the, I just remember uh, getting a, a a big thrill from that line. <laughs> the seven hundred and nine episodes ago, I feel just it's weird. Well, literally weird because it's unusual. One is that actually true. Is it that many episodes? I, I it must be. I mean, well, I mean, I haven't personally counted, but I I like it. Probably depends on a few different things of how if you count this as part of that and how do you do two parters and that sort of thing. But it must be almost right. <laughs> probably depends on who you ask. Sure. So. So one, it's weird just because like you don't see that right. It's usually like some time you know mm-hmm. ago like mm-hmm. however, like years or centuries or millennia or whatever well um, and almost always when we get either doctor who or buffy or whatever these shows where it says you know or, or, or even Battlestar galactic or whatever previously on buffy the vampire slayer it's always like <laughs> one or two episodes ago for the most part like maybe a season ago to remind us of something we might have forgotten not like 709 like just yep. the kind of bulk of that number is uh yep. you know that that's the joke i guess um is... well there's that but also like episodes ago well one so like like this is different than those like those are like outside the story so mm-hmm. that that's like the non-diegetic like right, and before the episode the starts. Yeah. Whereas, like, this is actually, like, part of the story is referring to, like, the non-diegetic idea of an episode. Yeah. And so, like, that's what I feel like is the weirdest aspect to me of it, that it sort of breaks mm-hmm. that diegetic mold of mm-hmm. the story. I mean, purposely. Like, I'll be, like mm-hmm. they know they're, they're doing this. This isn't, like... Yeah. Like, because we, we do have previously on Doctor Who from time to time, or more often, like, 
next time on Doctor Who. You know, like we get those at the end of almost every episode. Um, at least like within a season, maybe not like between the specials or whatever. But um, yeah. within a season, I see those. And so yeah. um, definitely like, like it's just weird that like within the diegetic story of Doctor Who, they're referring to like these episodes. And so right. like, this is um, how we quantify adventures. Is, I guess, you know, by I guess yeah. one question too would be, do they do that in classic Who? Like, do they have this same sort of format at all that you, that you're aware of? Have you seen? Like, you mean like diegetically, like within the narrative of well, just the story even, or just at just all? Even, just even, just, like the previously on Doctor Who at all, I guess. Um, and like like the format of it, like just out of curiosity, and, is it like similar to this at all? So I mean it might change in later years because, you know, over a twenty year period I haven't got that far yet. But in what I've been watching in like the sixties, um, they tend not to do what we would do today of like previously on and then show scenes. But what they usually do is start an episode with the scene the last scene of the episode prior so you sort of end with the last there's a little overlap there's a little overlap of you get like one to two or three minutes of something familiar of whatever the cliffhanger was and then it sort of continues into the arc of the next episode um and there's a lot more cliffhangers because they were like most stories consisted of like four to six like 22 minute episodes mm. so you had like every 20 minutes you're getting a cliffhanger and a new episode starts um so the feel of the episodes is even greater for that i think you because you're more conscious of like right. frequent breaks and everything which um when you yeah. put it that way like the 709 number is a little more believable <laughs> like well, right yeah, yeah. Yes, because it might it might include like all those. I'm not sure if they're counting by episode or by story or exactly. I mean, they must again. They must be counting by episode. It's one of those. It depends on who you ask. How do you break yeah, yeah. the things out? Sort of things. Yeah. Um. So the other question that I sort of had was like like the first um, maybe not exactly the first, but one of the first things we hear the doctor saying is about emotions right you know love pride hate fear have you no emotions sir and that's kind of where you get the transition into the new um sorry what's the actor's name um oh uh david bradley yeah and and kind of get that transition and and like the screen wide like the format widens and like right like this is no longer 709 episodes ago but is that like how much of that I guess my my sort of higher level question is like how much of like that what happens is like actually like what the doctor says and that like like is it is it really right up to that point like is that all like archive footage like that they're taking or did they do something else to like I think it's archive up until the shot of him saying the one you mentioned of like love, hate, pride, whatever that line is. And it's when it's that, when it's like the close up on his face, there are starting to blend the two. Mm-hmm. So it's a mix of archive and, and new footage. But what's, 
the stuff prior to that of like with the doctor fiddling around in the TARDIS and Ben and Polly as his companions and talking to the, the Mondasian Cybermen and all that is archived yeah, yeah. from, that's all like from the 10th planet. So when, um, and then, and then at the end, the actual, like him lying on the floor mm -hmm. and his face sort of morphing into Pactor Trout and that's all archive. And I think um, I've seen that before, like that actual yeah, like, morphing of, Right, like anytime there's like a regeneration clip show, it's yeah. like you see that that shot. Yeah. So that and the I, tenth planet has a, I think the tenth planet is mostly missing. So they kind of use whatever bits and pieces they can, but there's significant portions of it that just don't exist anymore. Sure. Um. So when they're getting into like, what's happened to you, Doctor? And he's like, I guess this old body of mine is wearing thin, like. Like is that dialogue all just new? Like did they did they repeat? Like I guess what I think I, guess what I think that at that point, once it switches to him in color, mm. they're kind of reenacting. So what I'm like what I'm trying the to script and with, the footage and okay. What I, what I'm struggling with is like how much of the story like obviously like Part of the whole story here, what they're trying to do is play with the idea that, like, just just like the captain gets pulled out at the moment before his death, these are, like, mm -hmm. new, previously unreleased, like, footage of the Doctor's regeneration moments before it happened that we never knew about before, right? Like, this is, like... And that's, like, the main part of the adventure. So I'm just trying to figure out, like, not having seen, like, where that occurs. So, like, like even if it's reenactment, like, mm -hmm. like are those, no, like... No, it's, it's all dialogue from the episode. Like, that, and, like, like those lines from, with yeah. Polly and Ben yeah. actually occurred in the episode where he's, like... I, like, is that, like, a regeneration chair he's, like, in with, like, the steel... <laughs> like, like, an old school, like, um, you know, like roller coaster seat kind of thing with like I, i'm not actually sure what that is to be honest with you i don't know <laughs> um i haven't got that far in my uh in my uh my my watch through because i feel um, like but the the dialogue about wearing a bit thin um okay. and and his kind of emotions love pride hate have you know emotions that's all like that's all from the like I assume yeah. once he's these are sort of scenes from the episode. I assume yeah. once he's like outside the TARDIS and like going towards the twelfth Doctor, that like that's all new mm. at yes. that point. So what I wasn't right. sure was like, yeah, kind of those moments between the like, you know, going to the sixteen to nine aspect ratio and like mm -hmm. you know the color and all of and you know, I forgot the actor's name again off the top of my head. David Bradley. Bradley, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, like all of that, like how much of that was like still sort of yeah. interweaving, splicing like together yeah. stuff there. Um, yeah. And I think it is using a significant amount either in what archive footage they do have or in the dialogue or now that they're right. Like maybe they don't it, actually have subtly... that scene, but they still knew what the 
characters were saying, so they're just right. reenacting that. Well, and a lot of times, even when they don't have the film, they have the audio. Mm -hmm. So they can even hear the way the actors performed it and, and, and get a sense of the timing and everything. And as we learned an hour ago, the novelizations. And the novelizations. Yes, exactly. Maybe that explains um, what the weird roller coaster chair thing. Um, <laughs> yeah yeah they put in a whole new thing um i do want to point out though like it this didn't even occur to me until rewatching it but the subtle um they i'm sure there are little subtle changes in there too because they have once he's in color they have the first doctor's hand start to glow like the yeah. 12th doctors and like just the idea that like that never happened in right. the, like that's they clearly a new series that. thing but we're going back in like incorporating the footage and what we do have and almost imperceptibly blending it with the new series mm -hmm. stuff. Um, now, if like you're the obsessive fan who's seen every single episode and the classic series and knows we where may, the seams are, you're going to see them. We may know one or two of those. And I'm not even including, like I don't know enough about the classic series to know every single minute detail I of like, which thing is original and which thing is? I, I'm thinking primarily new. of our our good friend Brandon. Um, oh, you're and, not even talking about me. No, I wasn't talking um, about you even. But um, no, I. But yes, I, I, I'm sure there are. I'm sure some of our listeners yeah. can. So like you can there those seams are there, but I think for for the you know for most people you know and certainly for like the casual viewer, you're supposed to like. I think you're supposed to be asking those questions you're asking of like, how did they do that? And like, where is the line, you know, like yeah. to go from the black and white and change the aspect ratio and kind of the way they morph one actor's face into the other and then just kind of carry on the scene. And, you know, and a lot of people haven't seen the 10th planet either because they've never watched the classic series or because it literally doesn't exist. So like, right you don't even know for most people like what is new and what's old. Yeah. So, um, but you know, long story short is that, yeah, this is a missing adventure that sort of shoved into, you know, the kind of moments towards the end of this episode. So like, yeah, once he's out in the snow with the 12th doctor, we're kind of in new territory basically. Um, so the the other thing that I sort of was thinking through was like I feel like this is certainly true with New Who, I, I feel like. Um less I, I like I assume it's also true going from like classic to new, but I'll let you tell me, at least as far as what you know. Um that like these regenerations like start and last much longer than like like the first one well the first one me meaning you know nine to ten um being yeah, sure. like you know very short and whatever and yeah. then like yeah Eccleston gets like a minute <laughs> you, you get like with you know David Tennant to Matt Smith like yeah there's some like wait I mean like there's some off-screen adventures, but like, and then there's like the little farewell tour, 
And then it's like, okay, like now I'm ready. We're getting a little like, more sentimental like, here. Yeah. Like whatever. Yeah. But then it's yeah. like here, like it was like three episodes ago that he's like thrusting his hands into the snow. And right. like, I mean, I realize like time-wise that's like actually just before this episode starts. But like, but like you find out that like for all of like the last two episodes, he's like basically been like about right. to regenerate. And so right. I like when he's like, yeah, I died a while ago and I'm like holding it in. You yeah. Know? <laughs> um, so I like versus, so like now, like if that's the like trend, like that's also part of like the, the retconning, right? Like it's not just the, like, we're going to show like his hands, light up a little bit but also like Mm -hmm. oh wait a minute you know it also took him like two days or whatever to like go through this regeneration process because like he was too scared to do it and like i guess the other option was that he would just die like like that seems to be the implication is that like like there's a choice involved here and i like this Mm -hmm. isn't the first time where we've talked about that like that there's sort of a choice of when to regenerate and and whatever, Mm -hmm. even if you don't like get to choose, you know, what you regenerate to that. There's some kind of like, there's some, there's an ability to suppress that um, to some degree. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, I just find it interesting that like, that's, that's also part of the retcon is like, 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 okay. Like maybe back in the original one, I mean, it sounds like maybe in the original one there was a little uh um pontificating maybe before the regeneration happened, but like it was probably fairly quick. Like it was probably pretty close to like It's probably like twenty seconds. Yeah, the, yeah, like, like, yeah, probably like the like, Christopher Eccleston regeneration right. like about a, a line about a, like a line or two about, oh, you know, wearing a bit thin and um, right, right. maybe he doesn't want to do this or whatever. Right. Like, and, you and, know that something big yeah. is coming, but like, it's not yeah. like long and drawn out. And I mean, Hey, if, no. if there are only 22 minute episodes, like you don't have the time yeah. to like, I don't have time for this. You know, well, have I a know 10 nobody... minute conversation before it happens. And there was literally no precedent. I mean, I think mm. if part of it is, and this is for probably for good and for ill, like, you know, the effect is what it is, but it's sort of like, I kind of feel like the regenerations get longer because as the audience becomes more used to it, maybe you have to, whether this is true or not, maybe the writers feel compelled to draw it out in order to make it seem like the big deal that it is to stop it. You know, now I'm crit picking. I don't know that that's the reason, but well, and you also get it kind of seems like you have to sort of make a big deal. Whereas like, whether it's the first doctor or the ninth doctor, when your audience is new to it, just the fact of the regeneration is enough to kind of completely blow everybody's minds. And by the time you're like four guys on, you're like, all right, like we all know what's going to happen. We have to find some way of making it a new experience somehow. Sure. And then you also get like the fake regenerations or, you know, started right you know regeneration right fake stuff. ones delayed ones yeah is he gonna do it you know right. or like with matt smith maybe he's at the end of his regenerations and there's a whole storyline about how he had to get a whole new set of regenerations right. like you have to like find ways of you know 
I, I mean, I think a new doctor is always exciting, but making the process of regeneration, like something exciting is kind of the struggle. Mm -hmm. But yeah, you're right. It, it, it is funny, like, you know, people who tend to, you know, there are plenty of people who love the new series as well, but for those who love the classic series and aren't as big of fans of the new series, um, my impression is that the kind of long drawn out um, pontifications and <laughs> emotional speeches and angsting about various things is a, is one of the big uh, like hurdles. Just get on with it already. Yeah. Yeah. Like the, the classic series didn't bother with it. Like you didn't need to tell us what you're feeling. Like we'll see it in the story or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, so it kind of cracks me up that like, we're going to go back and retcon that kind of right. stuff into the first doctor. Like, Oh, he was just as angsty as the 12th. You just never saw it, you know? <laughs> right. Like, like now, now it, it's not just like he, he, yeah, got hurt and regeneration regenerated, but um, yeah, now there's like this whole like adventure that he has in between right, right. these moments. So, which is, so that's the parallel to the captain as far as like, now there's this whole, you know, thing that happens in the moments before you die or regenerate that, like, nobody else knows about or has seen or whatever. And, and now mm -hmm. we're seeing that. The contrast is interesting as well, because the contrast is that the 12th Doctor doesn't remember it. And so, like, in an episode that's all about memory and and keeping memories and... Mm -hmm you know, retaining them and being able to provide them. Now, the captain also supposedly doesn't remember it because, like, the test that's part of what the testimony does. But, like, yeah. the doctor isn't affected by the testimony. It's, mm -hmm. it, the parallel should be that, like, he has this extra, like, thing that maybe no one else knew about before, but the doctor should have remembered it. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't. And so, like, there's this whole, like, side bit where he keeps asking like why are you doing this like what's going on i don't remember this like i don't mm -hmm. i don't so, so which is interesting because that makes the doctor kind of like the audience at this point like like mm -hmm. the audience who maybe has been watching since they were kids in the 60s and like are now like what's going on here like why is you know yeah. there's this whole like new thing here i don't remember this happening before and well the doctor doesn't either and so now you're kind of learning along with the doctor like what's going on and kind of um again ironic in a sort of episode that's all about memory and keeping the memories and mm -hmm. um all of that yeah no that is a really interesting parallel of of the doctor and the captain being sort of plucked out the moment before their death and kind of forced to reckon with their death sort of objectively beforehand and then sort of choosing to go into it and go through it and well, not retaining the memory of what they've been through. Yeah. But also what the captain says of like, I was ready to die and then this happened and now I'm not ready anymore. Like, like you made me stop and think about yeah, it. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like, okay. Like, Right, you took me out and like made you know got all my memories, and now I'm thinking through all these things, and like I actually don't want to die anymore. I want to go home and see my wife and kids, and like live a full life, and you know all of that. And so, um, 
but yeah, I mean, there is that, that, well, you know, the stiff upper lip of the English person, you know, that, uh, they sort of, you know, go back to do their duty. Um, Mm -hmm. both the doctor and the captain. Um, Mm -hmm. so yeah. Um, any other thoughts about that? Um, which I know I realize we've only gotten like the first few minutes of the first doctor um, and haven't um, talked about sort of their interacting yet. Um, no, I mean, let's, let's talk about their kind of interactions. Um, we, do you want to talk about the, uh, the uh, m- misogynistic aspects of yeah, uh, the misogynist in the room? Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I don't think we need to say, well, Maybe I shouldn't be the one who decides how much we get to say about it, but I like obviously like they put it in there for a reason. Um, I feel like it's kind of like over. Like there's maybe one too many jokes. I agree. Um, I agree. It's a bit. It's a yeah. It's a bit heavy-handed. Um. It, it it definitely has that quality of like wink wink see what we're doing here like yes um we know that like the older show maybe wasn't as pc as it should have been and mm-hmm. um yeah and i don't know i mean i think i think some of them are funny like some of the moments um and i think i think bill's reactions to it are like completely appropriate, like in the way that she sort like she has that no nonsense, but also kind of gives it back of like I'm you know I'm familiar with the women folk too, right? Like you know and that kind of thing, and and kind of throws it back at them like you know I can make you uncomfortable too, and and that kind of thing. Yeah, so yeah. like I like those moments of where it's like appropriate to the character, I, but some mm-hmm. of yeah there was just like. Like, okay, like, we get it after, like, the fourth, fifth, sixth, and, like... Yeah, yeah, I agree. Like, it's not that any one of them is bad. It's that maybe there's a couple, few too many instances in there. Just to kind of... It it makes it... And it's not even that, like, it's wrong, necessarily, because um, the one that seems the most outrageous about the jolly good smack bottom... Um, mm-hmm. is the one that's a quote from the classic series of like, of like him saying this to Susan and you're like, oh my God, doctor. Um, so like, and I feel like that would be the obvious candidate of like, oh, Stephen Moffat, you went too far. Like the, the show was never this bad. And then you like kind of see like, well, that's, you know, that's, actually that's the line, exactly. that you, the line that was actually <laughs> from the show. Um, yeah. but you know, uh, well, like, there's like, like I don't. Th- I think it's it's kind of all in fun. I don't think anything is meant to be particularly damning, and it isn't. You know, it was, and you know, the other thing that only occurred to me on this watch was, um, uh, and there's nothing that gave me this impression. I don't know that they intended this, but like, if you even kind of flip it, of rather than it's like, oh, it's making fun of the first doctor because he's like an old man. If you kind of remember, this is the youngest of the doctors. And so if you kind of see his like lack of sensitivity to gender politics as like 
naivete or ignorance. Mm-hmm. Like he's young and stupid and he kind of grew out of it. Like rather than kind of harp on the old fashioned, you know, right. Like, you know, old folks who don't know like about, you know, gender equality. Right. Like it's more, it's more about the doctor being embarrassed about what a moron he was when he was young, you know? Um, so that kind of made me appreciate it a little bit differently. And and I do enjoy Capaldi's embarrassment of like every time it comes up of just yeah. like, no, 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 stop. No, just don't say things like that. And like, you, I've evolved. But like, let me explain to you how, you know, right. this is going to be a problem. Um. Yeah, no. I, and I agree. Like, I, I don't think it's like overbearingly problematic or anything necessarily. Like, because or that it, it's arguing that the like the sixties show was overbearingly pl- problematic. Sure, because like, I, 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 I think that's the main argument: is are you are you picking on something that like can't really defend itself and doesn't really you know, like it was a different time and you know and I don't think it was I, I don't think it's as overbearing a theme as this episode implies it is. Sure, where like. This, the first doctor, every other line that comes out of his mouth is some sort of sexist right. remark. Well, like, that just wasn't the case. And it's like, by the third joke about women cleaning the TARDIS, it's like, okay, like, we get it. Like, Paul, right. Polly was the housekeeper. Okay. Like, right. Yep. Um, right. Like, one of those would have been fun. Exactly. To say, oh, clearly Polly's not around anymore. And then just let that go. Right. Yeah. Right. Um... So, yeah, I mean, it is what it is. I mean, it is sprinkled a bit throughout the episode, but I feel like as the episode goes on, too, it, they, they do lessen up a little bit. Or at least I didn't notice it as much later in the mm-hmm. episodes. Um, but maybe that's more, says more about me than what's actually true. I'd have to go back and, like, actually watch it with that in mind. No, I mean, it's probably as they get more into, like, the plot and everything. Yeah. It, it's It's less about the comedy of their interactions and everything. So that's probably true. Um, well, yeah, and that's true. It's, it becomes more, less about the comedy and more about like the pathos of their interactions. Um, because it, it does get into, um, you know, like the, well, I mean, there's all the screwdriver stuff too, like the Sonic. I, so is that, I, I guess I wasn't clear. Like I assume that that's because like the sonic screwdriver was introduced with a later, later. doctor. Yeah. Um, yeah. which I, I don't think I ever realized, but like, I mean, I guess it's kind of clear here. Like, I mean, I got, I, I assumed mm-hmm. that that was the case and like, right. wasn't a hundred percent sure, but, um, it seemed like that was correct. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, when you get more into like, I called them D1 and D12. Like, when you get more into, like, D1 and Bill, like, mm-hmm. you know, talking through of, like, you know, what's going on and why, you know, like, like, Bill sort of asking, like, 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 what, what did you even, like, why did you even go off, like, in the first place? Like, what were you doing? And, um, and he's like, oh, you know, I'm sure your doctor has explained. And Bill's like, I'm not sure he even remembers, which again, like it's a episode about memory. So that's like, mm-hmm. that's 
maybe true, maybe not, but like that's Bill's assessment anyway, or or testimony Bill's assessment. Um and then like the the question of not what are you running away from, which I think is mostly how we've uh had it positioned in the past like when the few times where we do kind of get like in new who like insight into like why he stole the TARDIS and ran away it's exactly that it's always it's running away right like it's running Mm -hmm. from Gallifrey and and you know not necessarily running to anything and and I think that's an interesting question from Bill of you know what are you running to and Mm -hmm. um the doctors, the, the, you know, D1 doctor, uh, you know, um, talks about the, you know, I left Gallifrey to answer a question of my own. By any analysis, evil should always win. Good is not a practical survival strategy. It requires loyalty, self-sacrifice, and love. So why does good prevail? What keeps the balance between good and evil in this appalling universe? Is there some kind of logic, some mysterious force? Um, and then you get, you know, Bill, like, perhaps there's just a bloke. Um, although they would have to change that line for the new doctor. Um, (laughs) but like, yeah, you know, perhaps it's just, perhaps the, the, there isn't like a mysterious force. Perhaps it's just this one individual going around and like putting everything right when it goes wrong, as she says. Um, and that's where you get like the sort of, um, you know, first doctor, you know, saying his line of, the real, real world is not a fairy tale. And um, that idea of like, which is, you know, I mean, I think, well, you wrote, you wrote the paper on fairy tales. So I, I would defer to you on this, but like, I mean, we've gotten the doctor referring to himself as being at least in or part of a fairy tale before. So, I don't know. I guess, like, like, do you look at this, like, again, kind of in the way you were saying, like, is this, is this old jaded doctor? Or is this, like you were saying before, like, young naive doctor? Like, hmm. like, maybe the doctor doesn't know enough to know that fairy tales actually can exist at this point. Sure. Like, I mean, that's more how I read it. Um, and as I've been watching the first doctor stuff and, um, and reading more about it. Um, it definitely seems like even sort of extra diegetically and everything that that's an idea that developed of the doctor as a hero, um, that that wasn't necessarily implicit in the story from the beginning. Like he was, you kind of had, um, he had a companion in the first years, which was the kind of what you think of as the the necessary young male lead who was, you know, the one who could like have a fist fight and like basically nominally kind of was in some ways the leader of the party. And the doctor's character was more like the eccentric old scientist who kind of is there to be mysterious, but also for plot purposes to have a time machine that can take you to different places and, you know, knew enough to kind of explain things and kind of get the plot moving and everything. And it's only as the story went on and and the show kind of found itself that they sort of 
slowly realized and evolved the doctor to being like the lead in his own show um and being like the hero basically um you know like it's not until the third or fourth time he meets the Daleks that he even kind of thinks of himself as an enemy of the Daleks like that's a thing that hmm comes with time the first time he sees them it's not like oh you know i'm the oncoming storm and you'll never like you know take over the universe while i like he doesn't he just wants to like be in a ship like he couldn't care less um he just wants to survive so i feel like that's kind of maybe what they're playing with is he doesn't yet recognize his own role in the story here um, or that he has some sort of heroic side to his character. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I think like, so the, the, the up then later is when, you know, the, the 12th doctor says that you're right, that the universe, you know, generally fails to be a fairy tale, but that's where we come in. And I think that's kind of what gets at the idea too, of fairy tales as Tolkien tells us don't argue that the world isn't full of bad and terrible and tragic things. You know, they're a reminder that there can occasionally be something beyond that. Um, and if, you know, if you're Tolkien, you read all sorts of spiritual meaning into that. Um, but even from like a secular point of view, I don't think the fairy tale, you know, genre is saying that, um, you know, all stories end happily and mm -hmm. good always wins and things are always easy and nice. And like, what's the Buffy speech? Um, you know, like everything, everybody always does the right thing. And, you know, like that's for fairy tales to have power. They need to be the exception to the rule. Like a you catastrophic ending is, thrilling because you expect it to end badly or because most times it ends badly and so when you get a happy turn it's that much more meaningful so i think maybe the first doctor recognizes the truth that the world is an awful place but then the 12th doctor has the wisdom to come and say but there are these exceptions there are these moments and we can be part of that of when you know goodness does prevail even if it's only once in a while right i'm sorry i really got to blow my nose <coughs> go for it <coughs> um <coughs> sorry i was like trying to hold in no no problem like a sneeze there i have to try it's allergy season try to remember like <laughs> about an hour and a half in 134. I'll write it down. Okay. Yeah, like for like the last three minutes, I've been trying like not to sneeze and like <laughs> I tried like blowing real soft and it like just didn't do anything. Yeah. All right. So, yeah, so that's my having written the, the thesis on this. Uh, that's my opinion, you know, obviously. There are many others, but that's kind of how I would interpret that sort of theme in this episode. Um, 
Should we move into the ending here? <laughs> yeah, I mean, so we kind of talked about the first Doctor quite a bit, and like some of the Twelfth Doctor, like in relation to him. I, I mean, I guess we can maybe just have a couple of things to say about the Twelfth Doctor, and then like moving into like the actual regeneration, right? So like, mm-hmm. um, I mean, there's the plot stuff of like going to like figure out what's happening. And I actually didn't have a ton of notes for the 12th doctor um, up until kind of the end, because it's like, like until Bill calls him an arse, right? Like, Mm -hmm. um, because it is a lot of like just reaction to the first doctor and then like sort of the plot stuff. Um, But like the, the, one thing that like Bill sort of says is like, do you know what the hardest thing about knowing you was? And, you know, the doctor sort of suitably glib and says, you know, my superior intelligence and dazzling charisma and all of that. And, and she says, letting you go, letting go of the doctor is so, so hard, isn't it? And of course that's like precisely his problem is letting go of his own persona. The, Mm -hmm. um, of the 12th doctor. Um, and I mean, again, sort of like thinking through like the ideas of memory and all of that. Like, I think that's all part of it is like, like not that, like, obviously the doctor is still the doctor after regenerations, but like Mm -hmm. the doctor is always different too. And like, Mm -hmm this becomes a question where like, like he, he says to her, you know, you're not even really here. You're just memory is held in the glass. Um, do you know how many of you I could fill? I would shatter you. My testimony would shatter all of you a life this long. Do you understand what it is? It's a battlefield. Um, everyone else has fallen. Thank you both for everything you were to me. What happens now? Where I go now, it has to be alone. And like, I wonder to what extent after a regeneration, it almost feels that way in like thinking about like your former selves. Like, mm-hmm. like I feel like with, with us, with like people, like, you know, I think back to something I did when I was 12 and like, I mean, there might be senses where you talk about yourself like, Oh, I was a different person back then, but it doesn't feel like, you were a different person when you were 12 than you are now. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, it feels like it was just me, you know, 20 or 30 or however many years ago that might be for some of us. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, and it's like, I remember the things and they happened to me and I knew different things. I was maybe a different size and I had, you know, had different experiences at that point in my life and probably well, definitely had different pressing matters on my mind. But like, when I remember things, I still remember them as me. And I wonder, like, that got me thinking, given the whole sort of focus on memory, and what he says here about, you know, Bill, you know, testimony Bill being memories held in a glass, like, how much of those memories, like, like, does he feel like he's the same doctor as the first doctor? Like, when he remembers, like, things I did 1500 years ago, like, 
are they things I did? Or are they things that like this other person who was also me did, Mm -hmm. which is like a little bit of a different like spin on it. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know that like there's an answer. I'm, I'm happy to hear your response or thoughts about it, but like, that's just one of the things that I sort of thought of when I heard that, heard him saying that, um, kind of like with the rewatch. Yeah. And there's a couple lines that leap to mind that kind of play with that idea. Um, it's one of those ones that pisses people off, but, um, (laughs) the 10th doctor talking about, um, some new man walks away, right? Like he dies and this new guy gets everything. And, um, you know, like literally talking about it as if it's a new person. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, so then also it reminds me of at the beginning of the 12th Doctor, he had that whole speech about um, the broomstick where like if you keep replacing the handle, um, Mm. to what extent is it the same broom anymore? That whole sort of thought experiment. Um, So they've definitely like nodded to that and I, so I feel like it's consistent with that idea. Like, you know, I, I mean, I think the real answer is that it's both. Like, he is the same, but he's different. There's something in the process that, you know, fundamentally alters him, you know, mm-hmm. that he, you know, maybe has the same soul and maybe has all his memories, but there's something, it is an actual death and rebirth, that there's some kind of process that, changes who he is at some deep level um and that's where you know you know i don't know it probably is annoying to the classic series fans i'm lumping them into a categories if they're all of one mind but um you know i don't know i think that's where like if you're gonna play with the angst of regeneration um which the new series does that's where like the trauma comes in of like, it's not just changing your clothes. Like there is some sort of actual death and resurrection that's happening. Um, and that's why it's every time it happens is like a difficult process all over again. Mm-hmm. You know, cause he can't just, he clearly doesn't just go, oh, I've done that before. It's no big deal. Like, you know, easy. It'll be over and like, he's resisting it because there's something difficult about the process. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I kind of like the idea that, that it's a little bit of both that he can be the same person. And yet there's something that's being lost in the process of it. Sure. And I like that because thematically it, it mirrors the, the, what the audience goes through like it i feel like it gives the audience permission to kind of grieve the character that leaves you know or the actor that leaves like it kind of like says like it's okay to be sad about it Mm -hmm. you know the doctor's sad too and if you miss matt smith you know that's okay you know or peter capaldi is going and this is his final episode and you're allowed to be like you're allowed to be sad about that and happy about the new person at the same time. Sure. Rather than just saying like, Oh, get over it. What's the big deal. Get on with it. Mm -hmm. Like, I feel like that doesn't do justice to like 
the whole like momentous occasion of the thing. Um, so with that in mind, the only other thing then is sort of the, the pontificating, the final pontification, uh, before the regeneration. Um, well, and it's kind of a lecture, isn't it? Which well, is sort of appropriate for the 12th doctor to like and give his final lesson, you know? That's what I was going to say. Like, obviously this is like to himself, but like to his future self, right? Like this is like. Like when we put off stuff for future cat and future Kurt to like deal right, with. Right, that's a job this for is, future cat. Yeah, this is yeah. this is you know future doctor. Like note to self. Um, right. Here are all the things right. you know to say, and I mean, like, like is this something that he needs to say, or is it like? Like, or rather, why does he feel the need to say this? Like, is it really for the future doctor or is it more for himself as he's, you know, preparing to, like, regenerate? Um, I, you know, we don't have to read through them all, but, you know, never be cruel, never be cowardly, never ever eat pears, you know, which I'm on board with all three of those. Um, <laughs> you know, hate is always foolish, love is always wise. Yada yada yada. Um, so yeah, I don't. I mean, I don't know that I have anything great to say about that, but it definitely, it definitely has that feel of like, like this is me like imparting my knowledge and my memory, kind of in a way, to you. Like, like all this whole thing about like you know resisting the testimony and kind of what they stand for with like these sort of like hollow memories like this is this isn't that this is like you know use my experience and my memories to like better yourself and you know all of mm -hmm. that is kind of like i think the intended purpose but also there's like definitely a cathartic thing of like i just need to say this like regardless of like what you do with the information i need to like feel like by saying this i'm improving the future in some way um yeah. well and what he says is very simple like it's these are very kind of clean morals that he's concluded at the end of this lifetime sure. like don't be cruel be kind to people you know right. loving is wise like and i don't mean that in like a glib way like like that's kind of all it is like after all of it that's what he's learned and that's like all you need to know really um yeah, and especially in the context of uh, another reason I think it's interesting to do the 12th and the 1st together is, you know, when Capaldi was cast, this idea of him being a throwback to the classic series of, you know, this is the oldest Doctor there's ever been and certainly the oldest in a while with the new series. And that, like, you know, he was drawing on a tradition of Doctor that, you know, was from an earlier time. And so to kind of have those, that approach sort of summarized in this episode and kind of give his speech of what it is that he knows and then clear the deck for something completely new. Mm -hmm. um, like even more than, you know, if Eccleston was a shock, you know, when like, Oh, a doctor in with short hair and a leather coat, like, how is that ever going to work? Like, you know, we're getting ready for 
the biggest departure we've ever had in the character. Mm. Um, on the surface level, anyway, we don't really know what her approach will be like, but, you know, on a purely, like, superficial level, the 13th Doctor, you know, is doing something completely new. So, you know, to kind of do the big summary of what does the vision, like, the best version of, like, the kind of older, middle-aged male Doctor, um, you know, and kind of this is his summary of what he's learned, and it's very simple, you know? Laugh hard, run fast, be kind. Like, that's kind of what it all comes down to. And then he says, I let you go. Like, he's letting go of his preconceived notions, maybe, of what the doctor means. You know, like, mm -hmm. this is another clean slate. And, you know, like Bill said, it's really hard to let go of the doctor. But that's kind of what, you know, the 12th doctor sort of concludes with. Um, yeah. And then the regeneration. Then she arrives. Yeah. Well, okay. So, but like, even before that, like the actual, like, power of the regeneration. Is this meant to be like, because he held it in so long? Like, is this like, you know holding the top of like a a soda bottle and like shaking it up like for so long and then like it sprays out and is just like powerful like like did he bottle up like the regenerative power like so long that like well, that's sort it's... of the I mean that's what they play with I think I think we had we talked about this when um certainly like with tenants regeneration it was a similar thing of like he's been off doing his farewell tour and then he comes back and immediately like blows up the TARDIS with the force of his regeneration from the inside. Um, so I guess it's a similar kind of thing. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. And maybe holding it in has some sort of effect to amplify it, but it always messes up the TARDIS. <laughs> yeah. A little bit. It always like, and I, I'm sure there's, I've seen this joke on Twitter fly around of, of people saying like, you know, does the doctor deliberately go out of his way to like sabotage things for the next guy? Like, you know, like he always like blows things up just to kind of leave the next doctor in the worst possible scenario. Um, like he's trolling his future self or something. Mm-hmm. Like, you have to know after this many times that if you regenerate in the TARDIS, you're going to mess it up a bit. Sure. Which is exactly what happens again. Um, yet again, I think this is every regeneration in the classic series happens in the TARDIS and results in a crashing TARDIS of some kind. Oh, really? <laughs> like, I think so, right? Like, in in the new series, I think that's true. Right? Like... The, the first one? It's sort of a 
gentle crash landing, but he sort of crashes yeah. in on Christmas Day to Mickey, you know? Yeah, that's true. He's sort of pleased to find that he uh, <laughs> actually landed it. So that's that was the gentlest one. But, um, but yeah, I don't know. It's something of a tradition at this point. Fair enough. Um, I guess I, you know, are would you count like the transition to the war doctor? Mm hmm. Well, no, he's not in the TARDIS then. That's what I'm saying. Like it's. No, I wasn't thinking of that. But like. Right, does that mean that, like, does the not being in the TARDIS, like, save it? And, like, the War Doctor is sort of, like, apocryphal anyway. <laughs> like, <laughs> Right, it's like, it's a webisode, you know. Um, well, and the War Doctor is, he is the Doctor, but he's also kind of not, too. That's, well, and that's like, kind of what I meant. Yeah. 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 Well, and his regeneration is different because it's deliberate you know like he drinks a potion kills himself and chooses a particular identity for a purpose and that's what sort of makes it kind of like wicked i guess whereas like these are the healthy natural regenerations of like they happen you know accidentally in the in you know in some adventure or other and there might be some subliminal influence, but there's no conscious decision as to who's coming next. Um, like he doesn't get to choose his next face or his next, only maybe subconsciously does he, you know, maybe he grabs a face from his memory, but he's not <coughs> deliberately setting out to like craft, like the war doctor was a deliberately crafted sort of identity. So yeah. Yeah, and the fact that it's not in the TARDIS does set it apart and make it sort of a little bit, like, more, like, I don't know, not good mm -hmm. in some way. All right. And so, yeah, so we mess up the TARDIS. The new Doctor emerges. Mm-hmm. Like, we see a new doctor, and then she falls. The mm -hmm. doctor falls. Yeah, again. <laughs> uh, yeah. Falls, falls to earth with the TARDIS disappearing away from her. Yeah. Um, how is she going to get out of that one? We have to wait till October to find out. Um, there's some speculation. I, I'll say this. It's not spoilery because nobody knows, but um, the speculation is... Is this is she gonna do a, a you know a retread of the um the Pertwee era where she didn't have a TARDIS? You know, where it's like she's maybe stuck on Earth, um mm -hmm. you know, doing whatever she's doing, and maybe the, the arc of the first season is that she doesn't have one or she's trying to find it or something. Um you know, because it seems like the TARDIS like goes away. So, you know. That remains to be seen, but there's some kind of classic precedent for that. So, mm -hmm. although 
<clears throat> we talked about sort of the promotional materials before as well. And there's like stuff out there pointing to all the differences in like the TARDIS between mm-hmm. the TARDIS in those promotional materials and, you know, the Capaldi TARDIS. Mm-hmm. Um, which, well, and they, yeah, well, they've shown footage of the Capaldi TARDIS being demolished. <laughs> so, well, right. You know, whatever it is, it's, it's, that one is gone. Yeah. Right. So I'm just saying like, like, yeah, like maybe there's like, Within the, right, so, like, the prop that's used for the TARDIS is, like, changed. So, like, how how much can the TARDIS police box look change before, like, the whole, like, chameleon drive is stuck, like, not be true anymore? Like, you know what I mean? Like, you would think that, like, if the, if or whatever they call it, the chameleon circuit or whatever it is, mm-hmm. right? Like... The TARDIS keeps looking different. <laughs> so, like, how yeah. how much is that? I mean, and, like, interior you can get away with because, like, that's a different thing, right? Like, that's just, like, yeah, a yeah. skin, I think they call it at one point, right? Like, you, just, you were just reskinning the interior. Right, right. Um, or, like, a new, like, desktop yeah. or something. And, yeah. like, yeah. but, like, the outside changes. Right. Like, so... Right. So, like, how many, like how, like, how different can you actually make these, like, police box look before like you say well the chameleon circuit isn't like maybe totally broken but like it's within like a range of like options here like right right i think it as many times as the production designers can effectively come up with new shades of blue and yeah sizes to the windows um yeah well and that's yeah that's what like I'm just looking now like that they're pointing out here, like the, the windows are like different sizes, but then like, even like, like the sign changes from like white with black letters to black with white letters and like things like right, that. Right, um, right. You know, right. There's little cosmetic changes. Like it can't, the TARDIS can't become like a car, but it can yeah. like, it can change the shade of blue or the, or the size of its dimension slightly or those sorts of minor things. Yeah. Or like, you know, the keyhole is above the handle in one and below it in another and like that kind of thing. Like, right. Right. Um, so yeah. So all that to say that, like, I mean, that's not to say that like the promotional materials necessarily dictate what the story will do, mm-hmm. but like, if that's an indication, they at least have a design for a TARDIS for, yeah, you know, I mean, yeah, factor. and 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 if we do see one, it will definitely be different. I think, um, you know, yeah, I wanna I wanna talk about that in our recap is sort of the extent to which uh, Chibnall, as Moffat before him did, um, are going out of their way to kind of make everything new, yeah, um, and even more than usual. So, yeah, and there's there's even a moment in this episode just to bring it back around of you know, the, the first doctor, you know, being like, well, what did, what did you do to my TARDIS? Like you made some changes and why is this look like it is? Well, it's for the atmosphere. Yeah. Right. And everybody, not a a restaurant for the French. Um, and everybody notices the windows, like everybody pauses before they go in the windows are the wrong size. Um, yeah. Right. So yeah. 
and, and the tradition of it's always, oh, you redecorated. I don't like it. Like he never likes the new. He always likes whatever his version was. Like yeah. the new thing is always too flashy. And yeah. Um, yeah. So um, it's sad to see the uh, Capaldi TARDIS go. But if we if we see a new one in this first season, um, it's exciting to see what they come up with. Um, yeah, and we don't uh, get a, a lot here with number 13, but um, I'm pleased by how pleased she seems, you know, like the kind of oh brilliant moment mm -hmm. is kind of fun. Um, and that's it. And then she's sucked out. Um, yep. And then like, this is going to sound like ageist and I don't mean it to, but you know, the only thing I think that's, that was tough with Capaldi was, you know, he's not Matt Smith. He's not 26, <clears throat> you know, like there were times where the running in the corridors wasn't quite as energetic as it might've been when David Tennant was running around or whatever. Um, and I feel like even in this short little scene, you get that from Jodie Whittaker again, that like, mm -hmm. she's somebody who you can like string up on like, you know, on like a, you know, whatever and like make her fly and do stunts and like go crazy. And, you know, she's young enough that they can kind of abuse her a lot easier. So, um, so I'm kind of looking forward to like just the energy that she's going to bring to it and I hope she keeps the accent she has a delightful very thick accent that um, I really really hope Chibnall lets her use yeah and not make it too like you know standard RP right um, Oh man, we went long on that episode, but yeah. Oh right, we still have more to talk about. <laughs> to, to talk about, Buffy. probably not going to talk too long about Buffy though. Oh geez, um, it's not like it's the second to last episode no, or anything. No, probably not a lot. Oh man, talk about that. Um, Should have had some caffeine. Well, if you don't, um, if you don't mind, I'll I'll start off with a few production notes. Um, all right, go for it. Give so a, yeah, I mean. Being our, our second to last episode, I mean, it's, we've kind of been noting um, when we, when we maybe have some final episodes from different writers, and it would certainly be remiss if we didn't mention uh, Jane Espenson's last episode of Buffy here, um, which I, we were kind of talking about a little bit before we started recording um, several hours ago, uh, that it didn't feel like a Jane Espenson episode much. Um, I, you know, I mean, there's certainly some of her humor in there, I think particularly with Anya and Andrew, <laughs> like mm -hmm. um, we get some of that. Um, but, you know, hard to, uh, hard to sort of like, yeah, really say that she, she, she didn't maybe have a ton of leash to kind of go off on her own at this point. Cause it's kind of like, yeah, yeah, there's things yeah. you need to do and, you know, to have the characters do in order to kind of set up the final episode. Um, so I feel like there's a lot of stuff there that um, definitely. Yeah, no, this is definitely not in any way a standalone episode. Yeah. Um, 
so yeah, that totally makes sense that she wouldn't be like putting her kind of signature. I feel like most of the episodes of hers that are memorable are the standalones. Like there's some memorable sort of premise to them. Mm -hmm. Um, And she just doesn't have like, that's not what this episode is about. Um, But yeah, I mean, her humor is there and I think it's, I, I liked this episode. I thought it was good. So, um, yeah, it's good to send her out on a, on a strong finish. Yeah. She has much in her future, but I will miss <coughs> talking about her Buffy episodes. Sure. Sure. Um, so the other thing I wanted to mention was, um, we can get into talking about the scythe and it's, uh, you know, uh, description and kind of um, the backstory that we get here in the episode. But I also wanted to mention that um, this, well, I mean, so obviously we see it at the very end of the last episode, but like that's like momentary and we're all kind of like, what? Um, right? Don't we see it at the end of the last episode? Or is it, do we not see it till yeah. here? Okay. For a second there, I was like, wait a minute, do we not actually see it till this episode? But I couldn't remember. No, she sees it like in yeah. the stone as she's sort of approaching right. it. Right, right. Yeah. We like see it and then it's like cliffhanger, basically. Yeah. Um, yeah. But not the first time in the Buffyverse that we see it. Um, and you're like, well, wait a minute, we're watching Angel at the same time and we haven't seen it there. So where might we have seen it before? During this time... Um, the comic Frey is actually being written. And I don't know if we've talked about this at all in our podcast, Um, but Frey is a Buffyverse story about a slayer in the 23rd century. So it's far into the future. And there's some... Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think you've mentioned this, yeah. There's some connections to more to Buffy season eight than to... um, this season but the scythe is one connection um it's actually introduced in a separate set of comics called tales of the slayers which features a tale um it it features a number of tales from different periods but including one uh one tale that includes Frey, um in which the scythe is sort of introduced and then um in the actual comic run of Frey, you know, the Frey story, the Frey series, um, she has and uses the scythe as well. So the scythe survives <laughs> and like people who are following Buffy and, and following, you know, the other following Frey and having read it. I mean, the, so that, that Tales of the Slayer came out, Tales of the Slayers came out like a year before this. So it's not even like, you know, it's sort of being released simultaneously. Like this, in the, this idea of a scythe has been kind of kicking around for a little while. Um, but people who maybe aren't reading the comics wouldn't have seen it. And obviously, um, you know, it's, it's sort of new to them, but others, you know, would have seen it and made that connection and been like, Oh, this is, you know, that thing that Frey has. <laughs> and so, um, right. Just sort of wanted to kind of bring that in there that I, I think this is really the first time where we get sort of a major element. Um, and I won't, you know, reveal how it's used, but obviously it's like, Hey, second to last episode, here's this weapon thing that's been passed down, you know, 
from these ancient guardians, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, maybe it'll play a major role in the apocalypse, or maybe not. Who knows? Um, wouldn't be surprising if maybe it did. Um, but but all that to say that like, I believe this is really the first time where we had this sort of like major element kind of coming in from the comics, um, and not even directly yeah. Buffy, but kind of the broader Buffy verse comics um into the show and kind of being this uh special thing that they that they find and have and learn about and right and certainly coming that direction because there's things that you've mentioned like oh they don't address this in the show but then they'll go on and do something with this character or this plot line in the comic but i can't think of any other case where it comes from the comic to the show Mm -hmm. um Right, so... And, then, you know, and, and I mean, I'm assuming that was planted in the comic to kind of foreshadow it? Or do you think it was an idea from the comic that they said, oh, that's a good idea, we should use that in the show? Yeah, honestly, I don't, I don't know. Um, cause, I mean, I've read the Frey comics. I don't... They don't go into, like, the history of, like, what the side... That, because, like, she... So one of the conceits, and like we can talk more about like the extend the the extension of the comics and stuff like later, but just because these were coming out at the same time as um, this season, one of the conceits of of Frey is that like she's the first Slayer who has been called in centuries, um, not maybe the first one since Buffy and Faith, but like, like that there have been like many years in which like a Slayer isn't called and then suddenly Frey um, is sort of like called and, and it's, you know, futuristic and there's like these other, like the vampires are still around, but you know, there's like these other demons and things just like you would expect. And, um, and then there's this side that's like this, you know, Slayer weapon handed down from generation to generation. And it's like, well, wait a minute. Like, where is that in Buffy? So, like, I I can't say for sure that it was, like, initially planted because it was just this sort of one-off tale in part mm-hmm. of a series of tales of the Slayer where um, it's a, there's actually, like, like, Frey finds this room of, like, all these Watcher diaries and there's, like, an image of the side, like, on the floor and stuff. And so, like, this this is clearly, like, something that is created after the Buffy era. But, like, I don't know that, like, when they were doing that, that it was necessarily, like, oh, this will play, like, a handy role in the Buffy finale. Um, right. But, I like, I can't say it. they didn't think that either. I, it's total critic one way or the other i haven't seen mm-hmm. or heard anything specific on that um yeah so yeah if anyone knows for sure like certainly we would be interested in hearing that um but like even like in in the fray comics like it's not even real clear how how she comes across the side because she actually so the the tales of the slayer story actually takes place after the run so then like there's the run of like the Frey comics which all take place before that tale 
but like mm-hmm. the tale is published first. So like, so it's kind of out published out of order, but she has the scythe in like her run of the series of comics. So it's like before she finds this room where like the scythe is emblazoned on the floor and stuff. And like, she already has it and it's not clear like exactly how she got it or anything. So mm-hmm. like, like, I don't, like, I don't think they really, I would be surprised if they like, were definitely like knew the whole story in advance. But I mean, Joss also was a planner as we've seen and, and sort of scoped out his season. So it's possible that, you know, in February, 2002, he was thinking ahead to, you know, Mm -hmm. May, 2003, when these episodes are airing and, Mm -hmm. um, might at least have had like an idea of like, Oh, this would be like a good thing for Buffy to do, whether he knew exactly what sort of plot devices were engaged at that point. Right. Right. Um, so yeah, those are kind of my two production notes. Sorry. I don't have as many as you did. Um, but it's okay. Uh, yeah. Otherwise, uh, you can, uh, you can make up for it next week. Other, yeah. Otherwise we can go into kind of, um, uh, Yeah, so I want to start with Buffy um, coming back to the group, um, which happens like right away. It, uh, you know, as the 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 first says, uh, she has friends. Her friends are in trouble. So like, there's no surer way to get Buffy back with the group than to have her friends be in trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, and. Uh, and, and, so she and none of, of them are actually really her friends. It's all the potentials and faith. <laughs> it's all the potentials, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, who do their best to kind of stand up for themselves, but there's like, you know, they're completely outnumbered by crazy, strong uber vamps, and there's like really not much they can do. Um, so, yeah, so she jumps in and, you know, single-handedly sort of, takes care of all the vampires and saves the day. Um, and then immediately goes into... And not just vampires, like, but the uber vamps. The uber vamps, which I want to talk about, like, the side and the mythology of that mm-hmm. um, kind of a little bit separately. So, like, that's that goes pretty much, like, nobody remarks on the fact that, like, she just takes them out, like, no problem. Like, they're regular vampires. Um, and And after they had seen like how much trouble she had with one of them previously. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Now and she's here, taking out like whole crowds of them. Here, yeah. here endeth the lesson, right? Like that was her whole right. like, yeah. Right. Right. Where we had a whole like gladiatorial arena to demonstrate like the difficulty of one of these things. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So yeah. And the fact that they don't really dwell on, the fact that, like, oh, my God, like, the side actually, like, works against these guys um, kind of goes along with how she just joins up with the group sort of matter-of-factly. And that's sort of what stands out to me the most is after that, you know, kind of huge confrontation and the terrible fight where she kind of overreached her authority and they respond by you know, basically like kicking her out of the house and it's this huge rift and she's completely depressed and, and doesn't know what to do and everything. Um, she just sort of 
jumps back in and starts taking care of things and everybody just accepts it. Mm. And there's sort of a sense of not like everybody wants to pretend that it never happened, but everybody kind of agrees that that whole thing was a mistake and agrees not to dwell on it or Mm. focus on it. Like there's some questions from the potentials about, you know, are you really back for sure? Um, And, you know, and, and is it Amanda who kind of says that she sees this as punishment for, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I, for choosing faith, I guess, by implication is that they kind of are ready to blame faith for what happened. Um, Or maybe just punishment for getting rid of Buffy at all. Um, But apart from that, like, it's not like there's a big reconciliation at all. Like we don't get any, I don't think we get any scenes of like people apologizing to each other, mm. you know, and forgiving each other, which is sort of what I would have expected is like between like Buffy and her close friends, there needs to be some sort of like, I don't know, moment where we sit down and everybody sort of apologizes and asks for forgiveness and accepts it and everything and they just completely get on with it um which is kind of interesting like she's planning things with xander and willow and giles as if she never left um and they're accepting her ideas as if she never left and cheerfully contributing their own skills and uh um it's just kind of funny. It's, it's not at all what I sort of was expecting. Um, I don't know. It's kind of refreshing though. Like maybe in the moment of wartime, you don't need all that and you don't really have time for it. Um, it's sort of, you know, it's more about like, we're in crisis and we could die at any moment and we probably will. And I don't know, even after that terrible argument, the forgiveness is sort of implicit and we're all just ready to move on and not make like a big thing of it. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Is that kind of how you read the non-discussion of like, Hey, remember when two days ago when like when we not even we not all, even like, like it's like the day before. Well, that's true. That's true. Like, she was only out like one night. Yeah, she right? like leaves and goes like kicks the guy out of his house, and then like Spike comes, and right. then it's like and this is the like next the next day. day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, because there's no way, there's no way that that's any sort of oversight on the part of the characters or the writers. Right. Like, it's not like we forgot that this happened, like, in, you know, two episodes ago or last night. So so it has to be a choice to just not... Yeah. not, Not go there. And not in... But what I'm trying to say is I don't think that's in a kind of, like, evasive way. It's not like they're ignoring what happened. It's just that, like... We're all on the same page again. 
we've agreed that that was crappy and that we all made some dumb decisions and we're ready to sort of just move past that and start making better decisions now. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think that's exactly it. Like, I think they're, they're just looking at, based on the comments um, that like Amanda and, and um, I mean, I think she's the primary one and there's maybe like one or two other comments from the potentials of, um, you know, Kennedy says, you know, we followed her and it was, you know, whatever. And Vi was like, well, it didn't work out and, you know, all of that. And, and Buffy's like more forgiving, obviously, like of like, it was a trap. It wasn't her fault, but also like thinking mm -hmm. back to like her own, you know, leading them into a trap and like, yeah. sort of recognizing like this could have happened to me as well and not just could have it literally did happen yeah. to her as well so yeah i think i think those are um like i think it's vi who keeps saying like we you know we got punished we got punished and um you know sort of talking about it like this is the result of like the bad decision to follow faith and Buffy's being more forgiven. And like in Buffy's conversation with Faith, you know, which happens a little later, is like Faith acknowledges like you have the scythe, you're the leader, like that's cool with me. Like I like mm -hmm. even even at this point, like and remember Faith was never like make me your leader. Like she even resists yeah. it and is was like whoa, like, hey, let's take a step back. I'm not, like, I'm not, like, looking to be the one to lead you people. And then, like, it's sort of thrust on her. And I think the whole thing between them is that there is a sort of, um, commiseration, I guess, uh, you know, about the difficulties and loneliness of being, you know, a leader. Mm -hmm. Um, so... And, and a recognition on Faith's part of, like, not ever realize like, you know, an admission of her jealousy and not realizing, like, how lonely and, um, you know, isolating it is to be that leader that Buffy is. So, yeah. Um, I think, yeah, well, I think each one of them has always been kind of envious of the other. But sure. But maybe they're acknowledging that for the first time. Um, yeah. Or kind of openly sort of admitting it to themselves. I, I definitely think those ideas are there, but they're not, you know, they're definitely not like, like they don't dwell on it, you know, for sure. Like you said, it, they kind of like, okay, like we're mentioning this and then moving on. We've got a lot more like, ground to cover before yeah. the final episode yeah well and this is like the the you know to come go back to our classic versus new series approaches this is the kind of like yeah we we know about the forgiveness like we know we can see it in the story we don't need to mm -hmm. have there are times and places for big long emotional scenes but this episode isn't one of them 
Um, sure. And like the urgency of the show ending, but also the urgency for the characters of um, just knowing that they have to, you know, their relationships are in a different place. They, they know when they've messed up mm-hmm. and when it's time to come back together. And when we don't have the luxury to, to sit around and argue about it. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. And I think with Buffy, I mean, kind of, you know, next on my list to talk about was the Buffy and faith conversation. And, um, you know, that's mostly what we get, I think is faith's kind of very, like you said, she never really wanted to be the leader of everybody to begin with. But I think you get like her very genuine explanation to Buffy of that wasn't what she was after. And she's happy to sort of give that back to Buffy now. Mm -hmm. Um, And she's always been envious of her relationships. Um, But she got a taste of the responsibility that comes with that. Um, Because at least Faith, the loner, only has to worry about herself. Yep. And not all of these weaker people, you know, who depend on her, you know. Um, So, yeah, there's the, the, the envy is tempered with a little bit of experience there. For sure. Um, all right, so let's talk about Buffy and Spike's conversation. Um, yes. Where Spike declares it the best night of his life. Um, yeah, I have which to, is, you know. You have to expect him to, like, break out in a song again. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or poetry. Or worse, yeah. Um <laughs> No. Um, yeah, which, like, it's a very sweet scene, you know? Um, sure. Like, in, in all the, you know, things that he's done in his life, a lot of them not good. Um, but he's had a lot of experiences, and he's even been intimate with Buffy, but, like, not intimate like that not like emotionally sure um so the notion of like him kind of hanging on to this like if he was angel you know uh with a soul he would have lost it in that moment right like of you know if if the bliss is not a physical sensation like that was spike at, at his happiest um yeah and kind of is ready for Buffy to sort of tease him and kind of blow it off. But mm-hmm. I mean, I think, I don't know that Buffy's saying it was the best night of her life, but she is at least trying to tell him that it meant something important to her too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and potentially very important. I mean, she even starts to say like, you know, what does this mean? I don't know. Maybe when it's all over and he kind of, you know, ends that line of conversation, but she's the one that's starting to say that, like starting to kind of wonder about what, what does this mean for their relationship in the longer term? Um, Yeah. 
Yeah, and he cuts her off. No, let's just leave it. We'll go be heroes. So yeah, Spike coming from a uh, season two or whatever he uh, started out in. Mm-hmm. Um, yep, season two. As like one of the 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 would be big bad. One of the lesser of the big bads, even yeah. in his own season. Um, yeah, he's turned into. Well, one of her kind of, you know, and the big bad who, of course, gets overshadowed by Angel slash Angelus. Mm-hmm. And. In more what, ways than one. What, once again, I mean, yeah. I don't know. I like we don't have to talk about like the the showdown, but at least like as far as the. The final right, the scene part there of, it, yeah. of like Spike looking on as, you know, Buffy and Angel kiss and. You have the first sort of like whispering into his ear. Um, right. Right. Which was where we started the season. So there's a kind of full circle to Spike. Um, kind of crazy in the basement with uh, the first sort of whispering. Oh, started the season with the first whispering in his ear. Yes. Yes. Yeah. 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 I, I, I was thinking of. Buffy and Angel kissing. I'm like, no. Oh no. Because no, well, I meant Spike. Well, and actually, uh, Jane Espenson also wrote the last time that Buffy and Angel were together, which was not in an episode. Remember, it was between episodes. There was uh, after Buffy right. is resurrected, she sh- sort of runs off, and then Angel from his show sort of runs off, and they had right. this like off-camera meeting which um, Jane Espenson writes the comic, uh, sort of imagining what that meeting would be, although it's not necessarily what actually did happen in the meeting. It's like all the mm-hmm. Scoobies imagining what their meeting is like. Right, um, right. Yeah, yeah. I, I, neither here nor there, but just kind of remembering that that's, uh, that's also a Jane Espenson story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I was referring to uh, Spike with his, uh, you know. Yeah, his craziness his, his, and. His influence. So, um, yeah, I guess we'll see which side of his nature he, uh, he obeys here in the final episode. Um, his kind of possessive, jealous, you know. Yeah. Uh, side or the you know this kind of newly blossoming altruistic like you know sort of giving side that you know I don't know the side of him that can say to Buffy that it was important to him regardless of whether it was important to her or not mm. you know like he doesn't need her in that moment to reciprocate he's just he knows what he felt and that's kind of enough um, whereas like, okay, by the time the first is whispering in his ear, the, uh, the potential suggestion there is like, he will blame her if she doesn't choose him. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. Um, so let's talk about the final confrontation with, uh, with Buffy and Caleb and, uh, Angel coming in. Um, sure. 
Okay. Angel comes in. <laughs> Angel comes in. <laughs> um, well, we finished, I mean, we knew, or you hinted that maybe we'd be getting a cameo of some kind from, I think. I think you mentioned that I at, mean, towards the end of the Angel season. He, he, um, he runs off, right? Like, I mean, we see him Well, leave. yeah, we know he has some sort of amulet or something, right? Right. Um, so presumably he will give that to her at some point, and it will be important. Um, but yeah, um, so he comes in and sort of rescues her in a moment of where she might lose, but ultimately sort of steps back and lets her finish the fight on her own um and comments on how much he's missed watching this sort of like it's his favorite tv show um sure like oh this is i haven't seen this in a while this was good um and kind of a sad foreshadowing of when buffy will be off the air you know like in a way he's kind of saying oh aren't you gonna miss this like watching hmm. her like beat up bad guys. Sure. And stuff. Sure. Um Yeah, and she wins. She dispatches Caleb, seemingly. That seems to be the end of him. Um I think that's um, a I pretty mean, Yes, that's a pretty clear implication. Okay. Um I mean you never know with these things, but Sure. I seems like the it seems like the sky the side is the thing that does the trick, just like with the Uber vamps. So. Yeah, I um, think we can take that at face value. Okay. Um, yeah, and yeah, she and Angel have a big sort of swelling music, romantic Hollywood kiss at the end. Um, like no time has passed. They're just, you know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. They're just always soulmates, no matter what. Yep. Don't don't mention that he was in love with Cordy for a while, and she's in a coma, and she kind of went evil. Like, just don't bring that up. We'll just yeah. I mean, that would just that would just complicate things. Right. Um. Yeah, I don't know. Anything else about the the final showdown there? No, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, we kind of skipped over the, the mythological stuff, but. We oh, well, back. no, I, I here's, let's talk about that, because I do. I mean, we do learn, we still don't quite know what the scythe is, but we do learn some stuff, like, mainly that it's the the secret to killing all of these unkillable bad guys right Um, and and seemingly starting with caleb like not just vampires right like like because i mean the other thing with caleb of course is that there's this sort of like well i mean beyond all the sort of like sexual innuendo and stuff there's this sort of merging with the first where the first kind of gives him some sort of power and i Mm -hmm. think I mean, you know, these are maybe some typical sort of Whedon-esque, like, you know, uh, red herrings, for you know, or something, where, like, the idea is that, like, now Caleb's even strong. Like, we've already seen him be strong and, like, self-heal and, you know, that kind of stuff. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but now there's this new weapon. And, like, in the very first scene, we see him sort of, like, recoil from it and be, you know, uh, sort of be afraid of it and not, like, yeah. like he's not, he can't pull it out from the stone. Uh, mm-hmm. And we get sort of the, you know, Arthurian reference to it. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, so it, you know, it's not necessarily strength, but it's, you know, someone who's like, you know, whatever, pure of heart or, or that it's meant for or whatever in that way. Um, but like Caleb sort of has his own strength, but we see with, um, you know, after Buffy sort of, you know, chops him in half, <laughs> like... Mm-hmm. Like, he's not coming up from that. That's not, like, a healing wound. And, you know, I mean, part of it is, I suppose you could say, like, oh, is this just, like, because it's such, like, you know, it's, like, okay, maybe he can heal from, like, superficial stuff, but, like, bigger stuff he can't heal from. Or is it, is there some, is it because of this power that Buffy feels in the scythe? And, you know, maybe there's, maybe there's something more to that than just, like, she caused a really deep wound. Like maybe there's something magical that like killed the power that was in him, you know, given to him right. by the first. Right. Yeah. I mean, it seems like a mix of things. Like it, it has genuine power that she can feel and faith can feel, but it also like, there has to be some sort of like psychological effect of giving them, you know, the confidence to go in and, and like stand up to like, she seems sure that she can take on Caleb in a way that she wasn't before. Mm -hmm. Um, and then there's like, maybe there is something like, like magical, but physical to what it does to these demons. Like maybe the, the tip is, you know, affects them in a particular, like if it's poisoned or something that, you know, right. Like or, or, or some, a special wood or something. Yeah. Right. Or a spell or whatever it is that sort of undoes whatever like magical strength they have. Um, and something they can't recover from. So, yeah. So, um, I want to talk for at least a minute about the, the guardian. Um, yeah. Who, says that she um put the she put it in the stone right mm-hmm. there was a there was like a, a a group of them um uh women uh who wanted to protect the slayer and like are not seemingly like not that they're not allied with but like they're a completely separate group from the patriarchal all male like watchers mm-hmm. who evolved um out of the shadow men um and while they've been kind of manipulating the slayer throughout history the guardians have been trying to look out for the slayer and protect her um yeah and uh so that's a very interesting you know kind of critique of this whole watcher slayer relationship that there's this you know even older and more fundamental group of people sure who 
Do we you, don't know much about them. She could be lying, but like, do you, seems like they genuinely have her best interest in mind. And yeah, yeah, the the, the deeper magic from before the Donna time, right? Like, right, right, um, right. And it's a it's a specifically a feminine right force. Um, um, yeah, and that they crafted the right. So the power in this side is not based necessarily in the same sort of demonic power that we saw was sort of the source of the slayer power too mm -hmm. i think there's something to that um mm -hmm. and that it um it referenced you know she references like the old ones right like that it killed it was the reason it was in sunnydale was because there and maybe this is like coincident with the fact that there's a hellmouth here was that you know they're used to be like the last of the old ones was kind of in this area and mm -hmm. it was used to kill them and then was kind of put away for some future use that now is come at hand. Um, yeah. Whatever that might be. I mean, we don't necessarily know what that is at this point yet. But yeah. Beyond, you know, Buffy and the impending apocalypse. I mean, like, yes. I think we can make like some broad, uh, yeah. you know, assumptions. Right, but we don't know specifically. Yeah. Well, especially because we still, I mean, the first is incorporeal. Like, sure. We still haven't cracked the the riddle of how do you kill a non physical being? And like, the side doesn't, maybe the side works, but like, it's a physical object. Right. So it's not obvious to me that that's the solution to all of the problems here. Um, we still need a way to kill the first. Um, yeah. But at least now Buffy has a way to kill all of the like lieutenants and sort of, you know, minions running around. Right. I mean, the, you know, existence of Caleb was kind of you know, seemed like what the first was kind of banking on there was that he would be a leader, you know, in this movement and war. So yeah. that's that's one plan foiled. Um, yep. Not to say that the first might not have backup plans, but uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I thought that was an interesting kind of expansion of the mythology although potentially that's all we'll get to hear since caleb snaps her neck um so i don't know if there's anything else about it that i might have missed or um no i mean kind of cover what all we learn and everything we don't get a whole lot and like yeah and i think that's fine like it's one of those ideas that's maybe more evocative left to the imagination anyway, like just kind of hinting at what you know of this kind of thorny relationship of the watchers and the slayers, then to kind of have this other dimension thrown in is just kind of sure. intriguing. Like you don't even need like a ton of detail. Um, yeah. I don't, I mean, you know, there also are like questions that maybe become a little more uncomfortable if you explore it too deeply of like, well, why were they just sitting around for 
thousands of years and not like actively. Right. Well, we're out, getting into like, like powers that be territory here. Sure. You know. Um, and like, I mean, like you can get away with a certain amount of like, well, we were biding our time, but then it's like, yeah, but you also like let a lot of slayers die in the meantime by not giving them this weapon, maybe that could have yeah. saved a lot more lives and including mm-hmm. slayer lives and female lives, if that's, you know, the intent. But um, right. yeah, I, I like we don't have to go down that road too much. I think we can take it at face value and sort of give it the most uh, benevolent face possible. Um, give them the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. Um, okay, cool. So, um, Buffy, Xander, and Dawn, Mm. uh, wanted to talk about their little dynamic. Um, right. Because Buffy gives Xander an important job and she, you know, we don't hear what it is at first. Um, you know, it's something that he's reluctant to do, but she kind of says how important it is and um you know and again we're straying into metafiction here when he talks about it not being there for the end um mm. not being there like you know for the final and she's like wait a minute like are you saying i'm gonna die and it's like well, no he's referring to like the end of the show in a way but like we can't you know you can't quite put it like that it's like there's this, the characters can sense that an end is coming of some kind. Right. Um, and it's important that that they be there together, like, to stand by each other, because we're getting into, the, like, the climax here. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah. Um, and so then we kind of find out the, uh, the job is to chloroform Dawn and... <laughs> drive her away um which scared me the first time i have to say that got me that was a good jump um when he, when he sort of her. yeah when he like grabs her um that was a good like jump scare um yeah and it took me a it definitely took me a, a couple scenes to even figure out like what was going on like i was you know briefly forgot the scene with Buffy and was kind of trying to figure out like, why are you doing this and what's wrong? And like, you know, he's possessed again, um, you know, in some way, Mm. but, um, Mm. but yeah, that's not what happens. He's just sort of following orders. And, um, I like that Dawn has a taser sort of ready to hand because, you know, when you're like, the normal sister of the Slayer and the apocalypse is coming. That's just like good sense. Like, right. It's not her first rodeo. Have it. Yeah. No, no. And she kind of pretends to read the letter as she sort of casually reaches over and, you know, mm-hmm. shocks him and uh, turns the car around. So, um, yeah. So Xander and Don will be there for the showdown after all. Um, well, yeah, presumably, I mean, they don't, make it back yet right not yet no um but yeah i mean that's sort of the implication is that don's gonna go back um also before we move away from them 
Um, yeah. One one like small loose end that gets wrapped up, mm-hmm. uh, which is Miss Kitty Fantastico. Do you remember uh, Willow and Tara's kitty that they get when they move in together uh, in mm-hmm. season four? Um, yeah. Don Don mentions um, you know not leaving crossbows lying around. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, at least not since that, you know, time with Miss Kitty Fantastic. Oh my god, I didn't even hear so, that. That's so the implication there being that there was an accident with the crossbow involving Don maybe being less than attentive. Um, oh my god. Of course, like, we only, I think Miss Kitty Fantastico only appears in, like, maybe... Like definitely one episode, maybe two. Um, mm-hmm. The last episode she actually appears in. Um, so yeah, so at least two. Um, well, the last one being family, which is the one where Tara's family comes to town. Um, and uh, yeah, this is uh, like we just never like see the cat again. <laughs> it's like never mentioned again until now where it's like suddenly like oh yeah by the way know you know uh don accidentally left a crossbow sitting around and i mean obviously it's not stated but it's that you know yes cat and crossbow Str- do not mix strongly implied um, yeah so sorry do i uh. i know you're a cat lover um and i don't mean that you're egotistical um but uh yeah Sorry to sort of share that, but um, we. I think I. Uh, I think I had selective hearing when that well, came and up it's, and co- completely glossed over. It's it. really fast, and it's like right before he chloroforms her, so it's like it's easy to miss, uh, which is right. why I wanted to make sure we mentioned it. Can't let the cat death just go by. Right. Terrible. Yeah. Anywho. Um. Moving. On. Anyway, um, and, well, so and actually, one last thing, which is also yeah. funny because that's a retconned memory, of course. If assuming it doesn't happen, like if the last time we see the cat is in family, which is in season four, Don doesn't show up mm-hmm. till season five. Well, she's at, not in family. End of season, four. isn't it? End of season four, basically. Okay, you're right. I for some reason I thought that Don was in that episode, but well, maybe so long ago now I can't remember. Maybe maybe the monks, you know, changed your brain too. You have an alternate timeline, um, right? So yeah, so who knows what happened to Kitty Fantastico before Don was introduced into the storyline? Right, like maybe may- she lived a <laughs> she lived a long and you know fruitful life and died of old age yeah oh maybe you're right actually no family is in season five so maybe maybe you're right maybe i mean don must be there then um because you're right for some reason i was thinking it was season four but you're right i had a memory of i felt like don was in that scene when the family comes and there's like the confrontation so um yeah. My my okay. bad. I I was I was misremembering when that. All right. Like, so 
so uh, Miss Kitty Fantastica wouldn't have, she didn't stand a chance either way. <laughs> um, she was, she was always destined to die as she did. Um, all right. Let's wrap up with Anya and Andrew. Mm -hmm. sure. Um, and they go, uh, raiding first. Andrew raids, you know, a grocery store and, um, gets a bunch of snacks. Um, I like him kind of sipping out of the like juice pouch that he finds. Like, yeah, that's such a specific thing. Like those pouches where you like stick the straw like in the Capri Sun. Yeah. Capri Sun. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, um, yeah, and then they they go to a hospital to get some supplies. Um, and, yeah, talk about whether they think they're going to make it mm. and why they, if they don't think they're going to make it, why are they sticking around? Why not just completely run away like everybody else in Sunnydale? Um, sure. And which Anya says that she did once. Um, yeah, or at least tried. Well, I mean... Well, I guess she thought did, about but it, or there was yeah. like, right, like that was the whole thing with like Xander, uh, right, yeah. right, yeah, um, yeah, and in her kind of way, sounds like she doesn't at first sounds like she doesn't regret that decision, like that was the smart thing to do, and these humans are stupid, and I don't know why they put themselves through this, and they're all mortal, but they still somehow seem surprised when they get killed. And like, you know, she's so kind of, yep. you know, annoyed by the whole thing. Um, which kind of then turns into this begrudging sort of respect for them. Like, of course it's stupid that they fight, but that's sort of what makes it noble. Mm. Um, the fact that it's not purposeful and it's not usually, you know, it's usually a pretty hopeless situation. And even if they make it out of this battle, they're still going to die eventually. Um, right. Of course. But yeah, that's what, you know, that's what she's sort of come to respect and appreciate. Um, and so she's going to stick around this time, which to be fair, she has been doing for a while now. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's not like this is the first time she's decided to stay for the battle so um for sure yeah and yeah i guess andrew is sort of similar like he could also just turn tail and run um and he seems much more hopeless than anya like he's pretty sure he's not getting out of it alive um but he'll finish as one of the lame humans trying to do what's right mm -hmm. um yeah and since you've been bringing up sort of metatextual things here too it's like not unprecedented that you know whedon kills off his characters from time to time right like we're, and so yeah, like, now's the time to start speculating like who's gonna die yeah who who's gonna make it through the apocalypse and like I mean, maybe maybe we think that one of the main Scoobies will die, but like, in addition to or in lieu of that, like, yeah, probably Anya and Andrew are like 
next in line as like you know disposable characters like if we're if we're guessing who's gonna sort of make it and who who might not make it uh yeah maybe maybe they're you know sort of uh along with maybe a couple of the potentials you know here and there like could could be on the chopping block um not going to give away anything one way or the other and i'm not gonna you know like we know that Whedon likes to fool us so maybe like this is a, you know turning your head in one direction to you know right uh uh yeah anyway so all of that to say that like i think you know along with the other sort of like end of the show metaphors or or conversations that have been going on like maybe this is another that's sort of in that same vein Mm -hmm. yeah definitely yeah and we get andrew's uh line about you're the perfect woman i've often thought so right um good anya humor there yeah um all right I think that's about all I have and it's probably past time for us to wrap up. So <laughs> is there any, uh, any big things I'm missing before I get to watch the final episode of Buffy, Buffy the Vampire Slayer? No, that's I mean, I, I think, I think we're there. I think we're ready. We can, uh, yeah, we can jump into it. Um, definitely interested to, yeah, see your take. I mean, I feel like, there may still be a surprise or two, but, uh, you know, I don't know, I guess we'll, uh, we'll, do you, so just sort of, I guess, finish here, any predictions, and it can be like, even like we were just talking about, if it, if there's like, you have a prediction of who might survive and who might die, um, do you have, or if, if you don't want to go that route, any predictions just on sort of how things will play out or how, how the first might, you know, move forward without sort of his henchmen or um you know the only thing that i keep kind of getting stuck on is i feel like with like the i like some of the mythology about like the scythe and everything but like with the scythe and the amulet and whatever that does and all this stuff it i'm waiting for like some sort of weed any twist where the MacGuffins aren't mm. either aren't as important as you thought or are maybe important in different ways than you would have expected. That like, I I would be very surprised again, and I think I've said this before, if like the final thing that makes the difference is that she happened to have the right sort of gadget at the time. Like, where's the, where's the character thing that makes her like prevail Mm -hmm. if she does you know like something that's about either who she is or a choice that she makes or you know something that the group does or whatever it is like if it's like the slayer with family and friends aspect of Mm. there's something that isn't even about her it's about like her having her whole like network around her or something um that's more what I'm expecting rather than like 
oh, the side has the ability to kill the first and nothing else can. Like, okay. Like, all right, we found a magical object two episodes before the end and it just happened to be the thing that saves the day. Like, that's fine, but I'm hoping for and expecting something like more interesting than that. Um, Sure. So... Yeah, so that's sort of, I, I, my prediction is that they'll pull through. Like, there'll be, that I'm not, I'm not hoping in vain. Like, that the writers know that and are kind of maybe misleading the audience with like, oh, look at these shiny objects over here while we prepare some, something else. Um so yeah, and I don't know. I don't know who I, I, people have to die. I don't know who they're going to be. Um, my impression, just from like, I try not to look at stuff, but my impression is that the main characters all survive into like the comics and the spinoffs and stuff. But we know that people can come back to life. So just because they're in a comic doesn't mean that they're not going to die in the final episode. Sure. So I don't know. I mean, Oz shows up in the comics. So like, you know what I mean? Like, like these right. characters that we haven't seen for years, yeah. like can come back yeah. in the comics and stuff. Um, yeah. So yeah, that's not necessarily a good, like, I think we like just taking like, the end of Buffy as like an an actual ending like would be my question like regardless of who yeah. might show up later in the comics or in Angel or wherever like you know um yeah I'm just curious like what what are your if you had any thoughts and if you don't like if you're just like stuck like yeah is is the whole uh you know conversation between Anya and Andrew like a, a red herring it might, it might be. Maybe they both survive and, like, you know, that's fine. And, you know, someone else dies. But, like, mm-hmm. yeah, just just curious if you had any thoughts. Um, yeah, no, there's nobody that's really, like, I mean, it might be, like, a cliche. I feel like Giles might be the obvious one of, like, that kind of Dumbledore factor of, like, the mentor has to mm-hmm. pass away to sort of you know, pass the torch on, but maybe that's too obvious. I don't know. Um, I mean, that's, that's the hero's journey, right? Like, right. Yeah. Like, and, and maybe that's, I don't know whether that is an argument for or against it. Um, sure. I don't think it's going to be, I don't expect like the main trio. Um, I just like I don't know. Xander lost the eye. He's sort of safe, I think. Um I could be wrong about that. It could be a complete like you know, gut punch, but um but I think we've had the the near miss with Xander. Willow's been through too much. I think she needs a win. Mm. Um and um and I think we've We've had Buffy die before and die on a season finale where that was the ending. So I don't, that's not, I don't think we're going to end a season that way again. Um, like that could have been the series finale 
and it wasn't. So I don't think Joss is going to end it the same way that he would have ended season five. Gotcha. If, if you take my meaning. Yeah. Um, like, I think if that was a potential ending, he blew that already. He did that. So we, right. we've got to do something different. Um, so, yeah. I, I'm curious. Dawn, I doubt it. She's, she's, Dawn is young. It's like, that would be kind of bleak to kill the little, maybe I could be wrong about that. See, I'm thinking of all these reasons why nobody's going to die, but then. And, somebody and maybe that's somebody has maybe to. that's the trick maybe no one does and that. maybe that's the biggest twist of all right from joss whedon everybody lives just this once yeah um well not the potentials though the potentials are like right. gonna get like well, slaughtered <laughs> some of them i yeah but i feel like a certain number of them are so much cannon fodder anyway like i mean yeah we don't i mean there's only like three or four that we even like have names yeah. for right right like there's a fair number of like red shirt potentials yeah like the red shirts are completely done for um um i think yeah all right well i'll be interested to see i i'm i mean obviously i'll i'm interested to see like your reactions to the episode all together and sort of what happens there um i'm also like like one little like minor piece of that is like I feel like you probably have seen like the last scene, like oh, a still, okay. like I would be surprised given like your awareness of Buffy, like just like a still from like the last shot or whatever, you know what I mean? Like, uh -huh. which would then tell you who survives and, and like maybe who doesn't based on who's in that picture. But, yeah. um, maybe you don't know that that's the last scene or whatever. So I'd be curious to like know too, if like you get to the end and you're like, Oh yes, I've seen that like right, right. picture before. Um, Cause it is sort of like a group hero shot, you know, kind of thing. Sure, um, not to, sure. not to give it away and maybe entice you to, you know, look for it or anything, but like, you no, know, no. like I, I feel like it would. I've made it. A long time. I think I can make it one more day. Sure. One more night to hold off looking for spoilers and uh, watch this tomorrow. Fair enough. All right. Well, on that note, we should we should leave because three hours is just ridiculous. Um, yeah. All right. Well, we'll be back next week then with um, the recap of Doctor Who, uh, the the season ten of Doctor Who and uh, yeah, some, some words on the final episode of Buffy. Sounds good. See you then. Mm -hmm.